0: This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Show podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris Sneaker. I have a pair of those myself, they are incredible. And the other one is the AT Trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks, I have the AMP pack myself, their civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts, I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 511 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX and as you know I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself and GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to govx.com, dot com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 390 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome two good friends, Maria Dia and Ryan Stanley. Now, this is part one of a three-part series I'm doing this week on the pulse attacks here in Orlando. And the reason is after the event happened, obviously there was media coverage. We learned a huge amount about the horrendous person that caused that event, about the tragic stories behind so many of the victims. But the responders themselves, their stories were kept from us because of gag orders and other directives. Well, now investigations have been done, and I wanted to pull those stories from those real men and women that responded so heroically that night. Some urban legends and and blamestorming came out of that because no one was allowed to actually tell their story and compare notes. So I'm going to use this platform to do exactly that. So Maria and Ryan are in this episode. The next episode will be from a SWAT perspective by the team that made entry and killed the shooter, And the last one will be the lieutenant from the fire station that was right next to the club and his perspective. Before we get to this powerful episode, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every five star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free project, a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredibly powerful men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you my good friends Ryan and Maria. Enjoy. Enjoy. and ryan thank you so much for inviting me to your home maria um so where are we finding you guys today on planet earth where are we sitting
1: um <laughs> go ahead <Stanley. laughs>
2: we're in orlando central florida in maria's house
0: <laughs> beautiful um so this is very weird because we used to work together in a central florida agency that will remain nameless um and now we're Standing in front of a bunch of microphones doing this conversation. So this will, this will, uh, we'll, we'll relax as we go in, I'm sure. But, um, the way I like to do it, where I frame it usually to make it more smooth is just to start with your beginnings, you know, and then work our way through to the fire service. And then obviously there's one. One event that we'll definitely talk about, but I don't want to be the focus of the conversation either. Um, so, Maria, starting with you, because I know you have an interesting history, like myself, outside the U.S. So, where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings.
1: Um, well, I was born in uh, Romania, Bucharest, Romania. I was uh, actually born in Romania during uh, communism. Um, And uh, my parents both ran away from Romania when I was, I believe, five years old um, to escape communism. They went to Italy, uh, applied for a visa, came to the States. And when communism ended in Romania in 89, they ended up bringing my brother and I, so I I have a brother, younger brother, to the States. Um, My mom, she uh, was a housekeeper, um, and then my dad, an electrician, so that's kind of how they... They made money here in the States and their plan was to come here to provide better life for us and my brother and I. So, um, yeah, I grew up, uh, when I was there after my parents ran away, we were, uh, left with our grandparents. So we grew up on a farm. Um, we didn't have running water. At times there was no electricity during communism. They would just shut off electricity for weeks or months at a time. Um, so definitely coming to the states as a young child from living on a farm with no running water and then living in california all of a sudden where you have uh, huge grocery stores and you know toys everywhere and candy and anything you could think of was uh, a, a shock to to me i remember as a as a you know five or six year old so that's kind of I guess my, st- my beginnings.
0: <laughs> now tell me about, you know, what your parents have told you about what changed when communists came in. I had a, a woman on Tamir and she was in Hungary. Um, I believe it was Hungary. I'm sure it was Hungary. Um, and the same kind of thing happened. So they had the, she had the before the idyllic, you know, normal life. And then obviously things changed the same thing. They were kind of thrust into extreme poverty, which she ended up getting trafficked through you know a scumbag agency that she thought she was coming to the US to the to Canada excuse me to work um so um, you know tell me what you heard then and also what Romania looks like now because I know you have returned since
1: yeah um well so as far as what it was before communism honestly I don't really remember having a real conversation like that with my family I just remember them talking about during communism just not having I remember as a child, going with my mom um, and waiting in line for hours to get uh, bread or milk or maybe some meat. So I just remember waiting for hours in line. My brother was a baby in a stroller. And then, and you know, not even getting to the front of the line, then the store was closed because they ran out of food. Um, My parents actually used to sell... uh, Coffee beans, um, I guess you'd say illegally. I don't know how they got a hold of it, but just to make extra money. So because coffee was really hard to find in Romania at that time. So I just remember my parents always like having just a lot of coffee beans. The house smelled like coffee and they would like bag it up and kind of sell it. Um, my grandparents having animals on the farm, uh, they, the government would come and would basically, if they had eggs or meat from whatever animals they had, they had to give all of it to the government, and they would decide what percentage of it went to us, back to the family. So just, you know, obviously no freedom of speech, no freedom of anything. TV was one channel, and uh, it was very controlled. During the day, there was absolutely no TV. It just came on at night, in the evenings, and cartoons were all like propaganda stuff and movies the same everything was but the the one thing that a lot maybe a lot of people don't know about romania at that time was uh a lot of people smuggled in american movies and uh which was obviously illegal but there would be one person in the neighborhood that had a tv and a vcr and in the weekends uh, the whole neighborhood would get together at that person's house and they would play like a I don't know, a Van Damme movie or something like that and everyone would watch and that's kind of how they saw what uh, how other people lived, you know, just seeing the the food that they had on the t- dinner table during the movie or the cars and it was that's kind of how people um uh, saw what, what other what what else was out there and they kind of uh, wanted that. So I think that was part of the reason why there was eventually a revolution wanting things that they saw other people had and we didn't there that's amazing
0: yeah there's so many parallels even to now like Mm -hmm. i think you know we have all the freedom and yet we're still getting a lot of propaganda through our tv that's Mm -hmm. causing a lot of the issues that we're seeing at the moment yeah but to me you know she had the same kind of experience with the american movies now just forgive my terrible lack of european geography (laughs) is hungary and romania pretty close geographically yes Yes, we are yeah eastern europe yeah okay um so when you've returned now as an adult, as an, you know, an American firefighter, mm. what does Romania look like now?
1: Um, it's definitely changed a lot. Um, and obviously, I go there as more like a tourist. You know, I'm only there for maybe a month, month and a half at most at a time. Um, so for me, I, we're traveling and staying at hotels, visiting family. So it's very nice. and But for just talking to my family there, I mean, they're they're not making a lot of money comparable to what we make here. So like us having the luxuries that we have, you know, big screen TVs, the newest phones all the time, new cars, it's not really normal there. Um, But everyone is very happy. Uh, People are able to, um, you know, own their own homes and um, they have cars, they go out to restaurants, they go on trips and things like that. So it's definitely a lot better. And definitely, they all love American culture. I don't know if it's because of the movies back in the days, and it's just kind of, um, yeah, it's... But the personalities are are different, especially me being a female and being a firefighter, which is not even common here in the United States, especially there is not common at all. So a lot of my family members don't understand um, when I was single, living on my own, how I could do that. Aren't you scared to live by yourself? You're a woman, you know? So I don't even think a lot of them really know what I do and, and what it means to be a firefighter as a female. And they just don't understand it. Mm-hmm. The goal there for a lot of women is to get married, have kids. And, you know, that's, that's enough, but I'm different. I <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's interesting as well because you said about the, you know, the latest phones, the flat screen TV, that's all still materialism. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's, it's always, uh, an interesting kind of reflection when you see these cultures that materialistic wise don't have very much, but seemingly are happier than most of us because we're oh, chasing yes. this elusive, you know, perfect mm-hmm. life with the perfect MTV Cribs house and you know the the sports car, kind of what everyone had in two thousand eight before they lost it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. So, um, but now with the the fire service just staying on on you for a little bit longer, um, when you see um, Romanian firefighters now. What, you know, what is lacking, do you think, through them? Are there any things that you've seen that they actually do better than, than we do over here?
1: Um, honestly, I'm not very familiar with their fire service there. Um, I've kind of asked some family members how it works and no one's really familiar with it. I do know a lot of it is mostly military and it's, it's, as far as I know, all, all male firefighters. Um, but I really am not too familiar. I know, uh ems like the medical side is separate and it's mostly private companies um but again I, I think they have uh nurses on their rescues there so it's not as we are here with paramedics and paramedics are allowed to do what we do i think they're allowed to do less because they have nurses and maybe doctors but again i'm not 100 percent sure how how they do it there okay and whereabouts
0: in california did you guys move to
1: uh we were in um san diego we were only there for three years i believe and then i was still very young then we moved back to romania my brother and i were left there with my grandparents again my parents moved to miami and it was like back and forth like that for my brother and i throughout well, as we were growing up we never actually lived in one place for more than two or three years right so it was tough
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. well that's a that's a reoccurring theme and obviously you ask brian the same thing but one thing that I found um, that's completely missed in mental health discussions in the fire service—we're just getting it to the point now where we're talking. But now it's like, oh, it's what you see in the job, and which is so short-sighted. And I get that's the first step of understanding, but the what we bring to the job is a big part of you know how much that proverbial bucket is full. You know, as we walk into the door um when you look back at your childhood are there any things that you would identify as trauma that you brought into the profession
1: um i mean yes first i think we all growing up we definitely have experiences that kind of um stick with us and affect the way we think later in life and act and whether we're aware of it or not but definitely for me i think um just moving back and forth from one country to the next. And especially at that time where Romania was still recovering from communism, the cultures were so different. And then again, going and living on a farm with my grandparents, um, who were amazing. I mean, I don't think I would be the person I am today without my grandfather and grandmother, but, um, you know, going there where it's all, you're living on the farm with animals. Um, you know, you don't really have a lot of channels on TV. Then, then coming here to where, you know, the, the teenagers my age are going to the mall and going to the movies. Over there, we didn't do anything like that. There was actually no movie theater in the village we lived in. There was really nothing to do as a teenager. So. All of that was very different uh, and very stressful for, especially, I think my brother was a little younger, so maybe he didn't realize it as much as I, I did as a teenager. Um, yeah, that was, I think, probably the hardest thing for me. And also living there and not having our parents, you know, you, you go to school meetings and everyone has their mom and dad with them. And we had our grandparents, which again, were amazing, but it just, you still feel like you're missing out when your parents aren't there.
0: Absolutely and then being being a foreigner quote unquote did you have any issues in the American schools with bullying or and or um an American lilt to the way you were did you have any issues in Romania
1: um I think I had more issues here, I think because coming here, I dressed differently uh, I had a very thick accent, I couldn't really express myself you know verbally and um so I didn't really have a lot of friends, but then my father was also very strict, so he wasn't, wouldn't really let me go and do the things that other teenagers were doing. Um, so that was definitely very tough. And then, um, yes, I mean, I remember being. Um, I think when I moved back to America and we moved to down south in Florida, and I, uh, I think I was in third grade. I went to class halfway through the year, and I was put there were all the the, cl- the the students in the class were, were in groups. So there were like five or six in like a round circle, like their tables were set up in groups. And I was told that because they were already set up in groups that they couldn't add me to a group. So they put me in the corner by myself when everyone else in the class were in, in groups of five interacting with each other. And I was just in the corner by hmm. myself facing the wall, which was very weird. So now looking back at that, I I wonder why that happened and that, you know, but I didn't speak English well. And, you know, my parents were hardworking people. They didn't, they weren't the type that would know what's right, what's wrong. And uh, so, yeah, I've had experiences like that, definitely. And I don't know if it was because I came from another country or I couldn't speak English well, or if I I honestly don't know why these things happened. I was too young to understand. Yeah. But but I think those things that affect my, my self-esteem for a very long time and maybe even now yeah you know subconsciously i'm not sure
0: yeah well that's what i find so fascinating about all of our all of our backstories you know mine i wrote about mine in the book and while i was writing things came out of my brain i was like shit i forgot about that I, I mean i talk about this a lot now but i was in a house fire when i was four almost died i had forgotten about it the whole time i was a firefighter i mean talk about two and two you know but yeah so there's so much you know that we have in our past that when you look back and then look at where you are now you're like, ah. Especially, like I said, people that struggle. I've had a lot of people on here that are, you know, really, really, really awful childhoods, you know, abused and all kinds of stuff. So, um, you know, and then obviously when they get in the military or the police or fire, they have, you know, a breakdown. It's like, well, it wasn't just because of the job. It's because, you know, they they brought so much in. All right. Well, then switching to Ryan, um, same question. So tell me about where you were born and your family dynamic.
2: Uh. I'm basically a Florida boy. I grew up in Florida for as far as I can remember. Um, As far as my family dynamic, I have two brothers, an older and a younger, so I'm the middle. Um, So I'm definitely not the spoiled one. Um,
0: (laughs) You said you're the middle one? I am. I'm the middle. (laughs) See, even even one of my previous guests, who's a a friend of mine, he was a middle child, and that was actually quite traumatic to him because the oldest was the first, you know, Mm -hmm. so, and then they wanted a daughter. Well, he was a boy again. And then when they had the little girl, he felt like she got all the attention too. So even something like that, you know, that comment that you make can can factor in.
2: Yeah. Um, As far as my childhood, um, I grew up with divorced parents. Um, No memory of my mother and father together. Uh, I come from a firefighting family. Um, Actually, just my whole life was firefighting and knowing the lifestyle and Growing up around the same station that I currently work at. Uh, so, I mean, there were lots of times where my father would come home and he'd just nap most of the day because he just got overworked at work and it was always, why is dad sleeping or why is dad gone? You know, there's between three boys and being a single parent, there's oftentimes with our pay, he had to work overtime almost constantly. And, uh, it would defer to my grandparents watching us quite often while we were little, but I feel like growing up most of the time, it was just me and my brothers and, you know, we would have to police ourselves with school and homework. And, but, uh, I mean, there wasn't anything that we wanted or needed because, regardless of how tired my dad was and even getting a second job as well as working overtime, he always made sure we had what we needed, you know, or that we wanted. So that was never an issue, but it never crossed our minds that how hard and stressed he's working and making himself on top of being a single parent on top of an additional job plus overtime. It just wasn't a thought in our mind until I'm basically in his boots as a fireman at the same station, still busy, understanding this is what he was facing. Mm-hmm. Granted, I'm not a single parent. Um, uh, I don't have three children. I have two now. But I have help. I have a wife. So it's a little bit easier on me. So my childhood, I think my biggest gripe was that I had divorced parents and I don't remember anything of them together.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting as well with you living it now, but also seeing from the other side of the coin as a child of a responder, especially in the way that, you know, that we work in the area that we work, um, that so many of us are gone. And, I, you know, I'm sitting here now, two years retired. I mean, retired, reinvested. <laughs> Retire is the wrong word. I don't have any money left. Um, but, uh, you know, and now I can see it from the flip side again. And I wake up next to my wife every day and I see my son, you know, most days and i'm divorced now too um but you see the toll on the family you see the toll on the marriage you see the toll on the relationship with kids and then you see as i've heard over and over again young male and female firefighters are so vibrant and so enthusiastic and great parents and great partners 10 years later you know not all but some it's a completely different story and it's it's heartbreaking to me to see that
2: yeah. Uh, I mean, I've been doing this job now for almost 13 years, and I've had a child for a good majority of it. And I've been at a busy station basically my entire career. Um,
0: when you say busy station, one of the busiest stations yeah, in the state. Yeah, one of the busiest stations <laughs> in the
2: state. Um, it's just like my father recently retired as well, you know, did 34 years in the same department and he's never missed a beat. It's always, you know, I've never seen him talk about or treat people poorly. He's always been a a fireman's fireman, you know, like grievances and things like that. He'd go to bat for people just because they ask. So it's not even that it's just, you know, he he's, he's been my role model and I wasn't even aware of it. So, I mean, I really don't have any complaints with my childhood or anything like that.
0: Yeah, no, and that's the thing. I mean, there's, there's factors. Doesn't mean it was was bad, you know. But um, you know, it's interesting. What, staying with you, what about uh, athletics? Were you a sportsman when you were young?
2: Uh, yes, actually. Um, I was big into soccer. I loved it. I did track for a while. Uh, I wasn't exactly the build for football. Um. I played a little hockey, but in school I was more of the uh ROTC geek and I was in band and <laughs> but uh yeah I did I was very athletic. We'd always play outside as kids, you know, we'd put our rollerblades on and play hockey in the street and things like that, and mess with the neighbors, through the football and went swimming, just typical childhood.
0: Mm-hmm. And when did you know you wanted to follow in your father's footsteps?
2: Whew. Um, I remember he used to have gear at the house. We'd try on and just play in it. And then uh, as I got older, you know, we just talked more about it. I'd started paying more attention to what he does. And, you know, I used to watch shows um, like Rescue 911 and things like that just to get a kind of feel for what he does because – I don't get to see it firsthand. Well, then he actually asked me about a ride along or the department I used to work for would allow people to ride along as long as they sign like a permission slip or whatnot, a liability form. So I'd come and I'd spend maybe 12 hours or something. And, you know, I'd go along on every call and it was cool. A lot of it was EMS, you know, it's the nature of the beast, but there was this one call it was an apartment fire, a single-story apartment, and we beat the first two unit in, and I just remember fire just ripping out the front window, and they go, they pull the line to the door, they kneel down, put their mask on, and they force the door, and it just rips out that door above them, and they just go in, and I'm sitting there outside by the fire truck, you know, in the safe area. I was like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And it was just then on I was, it had me hooked. So I loved it.
0: Beautiful. Stay to stay with you a little bit longer then. So tell me about your journey into the fire service. Obviously you don't have to name the the departments, but kind of what that looked like orientation or that kind of thing. Uh,
2: Orientation. Okay. Um, I was basically hired by my department and put through school for EMT and fire. Um, I had to take a general knowledge test, which was fine. Um, and then finally I got hired and well, just before getting hired, I had my meeting with the fire chief and the day of they froze the process. So I had to wait six months to hear back and then they continued it. Then I had EMT and fire school and then our orientation. Well, fire school's minimum standards, you know ET- EMT's basic medical skills but orientation was the department's way of doing things and since i had family in the department everybody knew who i was so there was like a target on my back and i had <laughs> i had boots to fill so it's like come on ryan come on ryan you know everybody it was all the time just pushing me and pushing me and sometimes it was good and other times it wasn't. <laughs> so, but it was pretty cool uh, just knowing that I could potentially work alongside my father, which I later did in the career. Um, it just, you know, and then it turned into calling me what we, what they referred to as a legacy. There were a couple people I got hired on that were legacies that had family in the department. So it had its ups and its downs with whether you're a target or whether you need to step up to the plate because you have shoes to fill. So I couldn't tell you whether it was better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: what made you choose the the busy station that you ended up in?
2: Um, well, originally I got assigned to another station during my probationary year. And granted, I loved that crew and that lieutenant. My first lieutenant was one of the best lieutenants I've ever had. But, you know, growing up, um, the station I'm at now, I'd visit my father all the time. I learned to ride my bike behind that station. Um, you know, the crew, I, when I was there, I was still in diapers some. And then I continued growing up and knowing the crew, they would change my diapers. And it was just, it It was home to me. You know, it was it was more than just a station for the department I work at. It was home. And it was... I remember going and they'd always get like three or four calls while we visited and it was always on the go. So that stuck in my head like, man, they're doing the job. You know, they're not just sitting around all day. And no matter how hard they got beat down with calls, they were just, the crew made it. They were a family. And that's, I was like, if I get hired with this department, that's where I want to be. And push come to shove, I was able I was fortunate enough to make it happen. So that's yeah. I love my house. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well bring Maria back in. So um the athletic side. So you know you're obviously bouncing from country to country. Were you into sports and if so which ones?
1: Um not really. So the whole, you know, culture of uh sp- kids in high school or middle school playing sports. That's just not a, a Romanian thing. And my parents just weren't familiar with that and neither was I. So I just, I didn't really play any sports. I didn't want to play volleyball, but it was just not possible with my parents' schedule, me staying after school. Um, so no, I actually wasn't very athletic as a child. I was very artsy. I loved to draw. I would write poems. Um, so that was more what i was into at that time um but as i got older i started working out and i love working out now and that's you know yoga and things like that that's kind of what i do to to relax um so as a as an adult i i did get into fitness more than i ever was as a child so okay
0: well then your road into the fire service because obviously we met getting hired for this department yes I remember the it was you me and like two other people I think
1: uh yeah well yeah (laughs) yeah
0: something like that um so yeah tell me about your journey from you know the school age to your you know finding EMS and or fire and then and then where that took you
1: well so as a child I never thought about being a firefighter or a paramedic. I, that just not wasn't around me at all. Uh, it wasn't part of, you know, our family or anyone we, we knew. Um, you know, I wanted to get into something that had to do with art. Uh, but as um, I, I kind of got into the fire service or started finding out about it, I was at the gym and there was a fire chief for a fire department down south at that time that uh Talked to me and he was basically in charge of hiring, and he was uh, telling me that I should go apply because uh, they need more females. And he was just telling me about the fire service. And I just remember saying, "Oh no, I could never do that. That's that's not for me. I couldn't do that." So that was the end of that conversation. But later on, I got home and I just looked into it online. I had no idea what the shift schedule was, anything. I didn't even know what EMT or paramedic really meant. Um, But for some reason, just doing the research, it kind of interested me, and I just decided to go to EMT school. And uh I just remember that first ride time I did in school, so the first time I rode with a, a rescue and not my first call ever, I was kind of shaking because I was so nervous. But... um I loved it. And that's kind of where I realized. And it wasn't like a, a, you know, call that would stick with you. It was just, I think it was a chest pain. It wasn't a heart attack or anything. It's just like a basic call. But I just, just being in the rescue and just being there and trying to help someone that just stuck with me. And I, that's when I realized like, this is what I want to do. I love this. So from that, that moment on, I just continued. I went to school. I did paramedic school. Uh, then I got hired with a department I work for now as a paramedic. And a few years later, I went to fire school and became a firefighter as well. So that's kind of how I got into it. But again, there was no one that in my family that, well, my story's not as cool as Ryan's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't come from a family of firefighters
0: either. Um, my great uncle was, I guess, the the kind of fire chief during the London Blitz, World War Two. He stayed at home and he ran... But by the time I became a fireman, he had dementia, so I wasn't able to tell him that I was. which was kind of sad. Did you, when you were first running, like you said, that that first call, did you have one of those moments? Because I did, being a Brit, that you're on the rescue and or later on the engine, like, this is just like the movies. Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. Definitely. At that time, being new, very new to it. Yes. I mean, now, of course, I don't think like that, and you know, unfortunately, it's not always as cool as it seems in the movies, and we know that. It's three a.m. Um, you know. Years. Yeah. You know. Not <laughs> every hero. call is as exciting as as it is in the movies, but you know, we obviously still love it and we do it because we love the job. But um, yes, at that time, being a new person, yes, looking around and the lights, you know, the, on the engine and the rescue and just, yes. <laughs> That's
0: pretty cool. Well, then, you know, like you said, you stayed on the medic unit for a few years and then went to fire. Yes. You didn't have a strong sporting background. Mm-hmm. So tell me about your, you know, getting your, your fitness and strength to the point where you were able to do the job.
1: Well, so when I first tested, when I tested for a department down in Miami, um, we were doing what's called a CPAT. And, uh, I, you know, I was working out all the time at the gym and, you know, I was pretty strong and, uh, in shape. So I, when I heard what the pad was, I was like, I got this, you know, three minutes on the treadmill with a, a, a weighted vest. I mean, I can do 40 minutes without a vest. I'll be fine. And then when I first took that, that test and I felt like I was going to pass out on the treadmill, which was the first part of the test because I wasn't used to that type of workout. Mm-hmm. That's when I realized, okay, this is different. It's not, you know, lifting weights at the gym. It's a different type of workout. So that was a learning experience and very humbling. And uh yes, after that experience, I learned what to do and how to do things as a female because sometimes we have to do things differently to be able to lift something that maybe someone that's bigger than me can just very easily do it. I have to use more of my legs and my upper body. And just learning all these different techniques helped me a lot. Um, so by the time I went to fire school, I, I, I really didn't have a hard time. I felt like I, was, I did pretty well and I was ready for it. But, you know, it took some time to get to that point. Beautiful preparation. And listening to people that were more experienced than me and, and doing what they advised me to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: When I came over to test for our department um, from California, I was already, you know, I'd already was working as a fireman. I was training diligently. I still took a CPAP practice test P C pat excuse me mm-hmm. not that <laughs> um that's covid19 brain um <clears throat> to to make sure you know because i wasn't arrogant i want to make sure i was ready and did it did well like, okay so now i can fly over and make sure i you know do well there too and i'll never forget i can still see his face but there was this guy big kind of like power dude next to me not fat but not lean <laughs> um the whole time we were on deck you know in these chairs getting ready to go do our, uh R1. Our he was telling me how he's going to crush this test, yeah. how he's going to hit the Force Wentry prop with three hits, and I'll never forget. It was like he was starting, and I was getting ready to to go on the stairmaster for the step portion, and I I hear this like wheezing, and I look over, and that guy is there dragging the dry hose line, mm-hmm. dry. <laughs> you would think it was like a you know a five inch <laughs> full of water right and he collapsed halfway through but it's yeah. the same thing you can't say oh i'll be ready because i do something different and it's interesting that you, you told that story because yeah i mean to pass a CPAP, go do the c you know do the movements that you need am i prepped by carrying a 45 pound plate on the treadmill you know and that worked but yeah if you haven't got stairs if you live in florida and it's, <laughs> it's all single story buildings you got to you got to, you know, work it out how to get ready.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I meant master, master with the weight of vest, not treadmill. <laughs> I don't know why I said
0: that. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 People think, oh, is that a woman's version? Oh, I can't believe it. <laughs> I know. Because, <laughs> what is
1: she talking about? I just use my, my accent. English is my second language. That's my excuse for I we mess go. up. <laughs> I do the same thing.
0: I don't speak American. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so with you entering um the fire service and going to a busy house just gonna obviously we're gonna we're gonna get to to pulse a little bit but lead me through the few years like the the upside but did you did you notice some of the the um fatigue the the mental pressure of of getting your dick kicked in for lack of a better word 24 hours at a time
2: um yeah at the time i was when i got hired i was 19 20 years old so you know I was used to the, hey, party life, you know, go out till 2, 3 in the morning, no problem. But after that, you get to go home and sleep. But with this, it was, all right, wake up at five thirty, five forty five, get your stuff together, drive to work, get to work by 6.45 at the latest. Because as a probate, you shouldn't get there after 7. No. Um,
1: even as a senior firefighter. Yeah, firm. even <laughs> as a senior firefighter. Yeah, exactly.
2: Nonetheless, <laughs> but... It was just, it's a different game. You know, even if you're not running calls, you have something to do. You know, as a rookie, it's, hey, check out this truck. Check out what's on your truck. Learn your SCBA. Learn your rip pack. You know, learn your high-rise pack. Learn your hose loads. Wash the truck. Wash the rescue. Wash battalion's truck. Wash the truck truck. Um, It was just, you know, clean the bathrooms. Mop the floors. Do the dishes. Like, so on and so forth. There was always something to do. And it was just... And then on top of the call volume, it's just go, go, go. And you don't realize how fatigued you get. You might not think you're doing much, but you're doing a lot more than you think you are. And then when you go to lay down, you never fully sleep. You you never reach that spot because you're waiting. You're waiting for that red light of death and the tones to go off. And then it's just out the door in a minute or less. And even like even though you somewhat anticipate it it's just once the tones go off and you have to be out the door in a minute or less it's zero to 60 and i feel like over the years now that has taken a toll you know and then add on on top of that your family life you know um when i was 25 i had my first son so having a newborn on top of this made it even worse because not only do you go home and not sleep You don't sleep at work, so you're trying to play catch-up anywhere you can. And then you have bills to pay, you have, you know, daycare to take them to, or the park, or you have to stay and play with them. So it was hard finding balance and finding time for myself to just, like, relax and collect myself. So, I mean, at a busier house, yes, it's more difficult. But I think in reality, at any station, you know, because you're anticipating. All right, when's it going to happen? What is it going to be? But I especially mean, at fifty, you know, yeah. the,
0: the likelihood it's going to be something severe and and or something dangerous. I mean, you talk about, you know, some of the the tactical applications of what we do now. If you're going to get shot, fifty is is a good place. You know, the, yeah. the, the stakes are high there. I would say. I mean, right. wasn't it fifty that got chased by that? That one um, gangbanger that was trying to finish the job I think got so. shot at.
1: Oh, well, I think no, I think that was uh, forty-two. Forty-two. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: but I mean, again, this—we th- have two pockets. Yeah, that's our two. Uh, I mean, you know, I was on the
1: on a call, and there was—it uh, was just a dispute, like a domestic—and we heard gunshots just in the same subdivision. And then a guy came running towards us, screaming, "They're shooting! They're shooting!" So he was getting shot at. So we all got in the rescue and just took off, left the engine on scene and went to a different area and staged there until, you know, 15, 20 minutes until the police uh, secured the scene. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that happened. It wasn't even the call that we were on, but it was right there. Yeah, So
0: exactly. So, yeah. So when your area, you know, when you get toned out, the chances, you know, same as where you are now. I mean, we ran Mm -hmm. into all those areas, too. You know, you know, there's a good chance. Like even to this day, I still knock on the door, standing on the side. Oh, I'm Not yes. a fireman anymore, <laughs> yeah. but that's just ingrained
2: yeah, in me. Just don't stand in front of the windows. No. Don't stand in front of the door, and announce yourself loudly.
0: Yeah. I know. Even then, <laughs> we went on the, a a trailer that was pouring out water. The water line had broken, and for some reason, Esso wouldn't go in so i went in to see you know because apparently there was a there was a guy in there or there was a car outside i forget what the what the uh, issue was but it, was, it became basically a wellness check like why didn't anyone notice this so we peeled the aluminium door up and i kind of crawled underneath and there was this elderly i think he was vietnamese gentleman in the back room watching tv but like mm-hmm. i first went in and like the the teapot was hot and i'm like oh shit this is like one of those movies where you Mm -hmm. end up getting shot Mm -hmm. and so again you talk about announcing yourself the whole time but he was deaf so thank god he wasn't a paranoid armed elderly vietnamese guy but Mm -hmm. even that just a wellness check how dangerous that can be
1: yes those are they they always uh there's always like a a weird feeling basically breaking into someone's house trying Mm -hmm. to make sure See if they're okay, but again, they could be sleeping, or you know, they just don't hear us knocking, and now all of a sudden they see a stranger in the house. And of course, everyone, most people have guns he- around here, so yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's definitely very scary to me. At least I always think of
2: yeah, it's just a sense of vulnerability. You know, you're going in this place, you don't know the layout. You know, sometimes the bedrooms aren't the bedrooms, and they can be anywhere. And like Maria said, they can have a firearm and firearms are pretty predominant in our area so it's just it's it's a gamble
0: yeah so what do you do what have you found that works to deregulate to kind of offload some of that stress because i mean like i said 42 50 51 70 the hyper vigilance at those stations is pretty astronomical
2: uh i recently started going back to the gym when i find time um it's more just focus on the family, the kids, and, you know, try to keep the reality of you got to leave it at the door. But it doesn't always work. Um, but, yeah, it's more just turning into dad, you know, when I get home. You know, uh, I mean, I'm always a fireman. A fireman's a fireman. But when I walk in my front door, it's time to set that aside and be dead. Mm. So I find a lot of joy in that.
0: What about you, Maria? And he, he said, that you mentioned yoga. I'm sure that helps.
1: Yes. I, uh, like I said, I definitely love working out. So, gym, I do CrossFit and, and yoga. Um, I love to travel. So, my husband and I travel as much as possible. It's nice to just get away from just the regular routine and go somewhere different, experience a new culture, new food. Every time I come back from a trip, I feel uh, uh, like new. You know, ready to mm-hmm. to go back and and I feel like a better person. I guess more motivated. Um, yeah, things like that. I like. I enjoy reading. I still I'm still in school. I've been in school my whole life. So, um, but I actually enjoy being in school. I enjoy studying, especially if it's something that I like. So. Um, but yeah, when I'm off of work, I just don't think about work, even though I love my job and I love everyone I work with. And of course, all my friends are also coworkers. But when I'm off of work and we go somewhere, I, I try not to talk about work. I just just kind of do, you know, just go out, eat, experience new food, things like that. But that's kind of how I deal with it. And I we don't have any children yet, so we're getting a puppy so that will be another <laughs> another uh, distraction it's like a
0: child's stunt double yes
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right well then leading into obviously a, a pretty uh significant evening in your careers um pulse nightclub as you know from 70 now you probably pass it every single time you go to to ormc um i i it was just constantly on my radar you know but Purely as a building that we went by, you know, Einstein Bagels across the street, yeah. which ended up becoming a pretty significant building, was just a bagel place I used to stop at sometimes. Um And then ironically, my first view of my last apartment was Disney Springs, which ties into this whole story, too. So tell me about how that shift was prior to the event and then and then what that looked like through your eyes. So let's start with you, Ryan. <sighs>
2: Um, you know, I think it was just a run of the mill shift. You know, we were pretty steady. Uh, I remember we had a call just before and we took him to RMC. We offloaded, you know, typical, typical night. Got back to the station. I remember Maria walks in and I think she had to the computer to finish a report. And I just went and sat on the day room chair, you know, just to take a moment to myself and then lo and behold, the tones drop again. And it, it was weird because it wasn't just a mutual aid call. It didn't tell us what exactly we were going to. Hmm. It just said, uh, respond with OFD units, you know, and it was very short and non-specific. And then I remember we get in the rescue and it says active shooter so we're like, "I mean, the typical mentality, this stuff never happens here. Well, it happened. Um, I mean, but before that, it was just it was just a day. Uh, you know, nothing out of the ordinary, nothing weird. We joke around, we had fun, we helped out everybody we needed to help out, and then it, it just it went downhill from there. I don't really remember the day before that. I just remember we had, we've been steady, but as far as calls or anything like that, I, it's like it vanished because the other stuff took precedence. Mm -hmm. I I don't know. (laughs) Just it sucked. (laughs) I mean, and then I remember responding to the call, you know, they tell us to stage at a certain location. So we're on the way, you know, we're like, oh, this stuff doesn't happen. Then we turned down Kaylee. Well, actually I took Michigan and then I went down Division to, to Kaylee and made a right. And then we just see a sea of cop cars everywhere. And we're just like, all right, you know, that's probably a typical response and then we get up to our staging locations and we're hearing just a constant gunfire. Boom, boom, boom. People running everywhere. And then just cops running everywhere. And then they're like, people running. yeah, it was just it was chaotic. It was like a war movie almost. Um, and then they they flag us in. So we pulled through the Seven Eleven parking lot. And we faced back out towards Kaylee, facing the opposite direction, and they had us in the middle of the intersection. And I remember before I even threw it in park, they're yanking our stretcher out of the back of the truck. And then just, I mean, the whole time, just gunfire. Boom, 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 boom. People yelling and screaming, cops running everywhere. It was like a maze trying to drive the vehicle through the cop cars. And I remember hopping out of the truck and, you know looking at Maria, and she looks at me, and, you know, Maria's a seasoned medic at this time, seasoned firefighter medic. You know, she's been through a lot. She's dealt with shootings before. I remember both, both of us talking to each other later about it, but her face was blank and pale, and it was almost like we're in trouble.
0: Where do you start? That's the yeah. thing, isn't it?
2: And then we walked to the back of the truck um, to – I think it was Lieutenant Odell that was behind it. I'm not sure. I, and, I
1: definitely do remember him being there. I just yeah, don't know if he was the first And they one just
2: start, saw. you know, pe- putting people in the truck, just as much as we can get, and then go is all we got. You know, I mean, I tried to communicate radio traffic to our dispatch. Hey, we're transporting this many to RMC. And I remember Maria trying to help like all those people in there at one time but it it was like a block or two down the road you, what, do you, what can you do
0: i don't think people understand that, that and that was, you have yeah. pulse and then station five like right next to it and then ormc right next yeah. to that
2: it was maybe a 20 second ride at most and i was just trying to communicate all right our unit's going to rmc with this many trauma alerts you know just so there's account of somewhat and I remember Maria trying to figure out how to get their information and take care of them at the same time and it was you know we it was helpless we couldn't do anything I think the most we did was maybe get some lines and spike a bag on a few people and control bleeding yeah control Uh, bleeding and but I mean I commend her to this day for doing as much as she could back there with what she had and then We'd get to RMC and we were met outside by, you know, their security and some hospital personnel. And it was just like they were overwhelmed. There were beds and cots in the bay outside where the ambulances go. And security, I remember a security guy hops up in the back and he was just so shaken at what's going on. And you could still hear it down the street that he almost dropped somebody. But... We kinda he kinda got his composure back and luckily he didn't. It was just nerve wracking for everybody.
1: I mean there was security security was doing jobs that usually they don't do, like they were helping us move patients to beds and pushing beds and you know, everyone was just overwhelmed so they were probably understaffed for what was going on. So that was weird opening the rescue doors and seeing security helped me pull the stretcher out. Yeah. You know, and Oh.
0: yeah because I had uh, Dr. Joseph Ibrahim on the show and he was um, well he is the trauma director so he was there that night from the trauma surgery side and first he sang everyone's praises that was on scene because you, you know I mean you had an absolute nightmare two blocks in the hospital so what, um, what was that like I don't know if you had even time to process it but obviously in hindsight now there was a big worry that one of the patients running around could be a shooter so, what was that like when you first got a whole bunch of people thrust into your rescue as far as your own security?
2: I mean, I don't even think that was a thought on our mind. I think it was just, this is what we have, you know, it's just screaming. All I remember is yelling in the back of the truck and just her trying to stay calm and keep herself collected and to try and keep them calm. And, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine being in her shoes, but I think she was one of the right people at the right time. Mm -hmm. So it was just, that wasn't even a thought on our mind. And then once we offloaded people at the hospital You know, we went in, I went in at least, I don't know if she did, but I remember seeing people everywhere in office spaces. It was wall to wall because OMC is normally packed anyway. It's, it's a level one trauma center. And it was just, you literally had to sidestep to get anywhere. And then we made it back to the truck and we discussed, all right, cleaning it. And I was like, I don't think we should. You know, because we, as far as I knew, we were the only rescue unit available and close to the scene at the time. And so I asked dispatch, and they told us just to come back. And I remember, because we had looked at the back of the rescue, and it was just, it was blood swiped on everything. It would have been a long decon.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, we did clean, obviously, but we didn't take... 30 minutes to right. clean. No. We, but MCI we
0: is different different rushing yeah. to
1: get back yeah. and, and transport more patients, which the triage area, the chief that was in charge of triage, once he gave us the initial patients, he said, please come back. We need more rescues. And there was, I remember a private ambulance there and there was yeah. one other rescue. So it was just, as far as I remember, three of us. Um, but obviously that's not enough. So we, we went back to where he had basically begged us to go back to because he had a lot more patients that he needed transported.
0: That's kind of ironic, because you mentioned about the being the ER being busy, and this was this pre-extension as well, or they already finished that extension.
1: Um, um they had already finished it yeah, okay. because
0: because yeah. what one thing with the COVID thing when it first happened, it was like, oh, there's beds in the hallways this hospital. I'm like, there's beds in the hallways all the fucking time. Yeah. So yeah. the public needs to understand that from. Right. You know, that, yes, that might be worse at the moment, but don't paint the picture like these ERs are normally quiet because mm-hmm. they're not. So that's, you know, but you don't care normally when our medics are getting the shit kicked out of them, mm-hmm. you know, and holding the wall for four hours. But, yeah. um, uh, how was I going with that? Oh, yeah. But normally the, the ERs, you know, as we know, we pull up and there's 50, 51, 42, 70. So... That night, I'm assuming that there's, for whatever reason, there weren't that many rescues already at ORMC waiting to clear?
1: Initially, no, because I remember the call before. Um I remember us actually being very busy that night. We were up all night and busy during the day, so... um But I don't remember. I don't think there were a lot of rescues there. I just remember when we first made it on scene, there were maybe three rescues total with us included. But it had just happened. It had just come out. So, But by the time we cleared the first group of patients we transported and we went back, there were a lot more rescues. But we went back to where the patients were and not to where the rescues were staging. So, um yeah, but I believe by that time, within, you know, 15 minutes or something, uh, they had more rescues yeah. available.
2: I think the reason we didn't go back to state it's just how all the, there was so much law enforcement, like multiple agencies. I think the FBI and the ATF were on scene already. And it was just so much stuff that I physically couldn't drive the unit to the staging area. And it was just a direct path to the scene and back to RMC. So, and at
1: the same time, I I, we weren't really aware of the staging area at at that time because again, everything happened so quickly, and we were on one tack. We were on a a different fire department's tack, which is the one that they were the it was in their area. So, I think the communication was on on our our radio tack. So. There was definitely just everything happened so quickly. And obviously, when you have so many patients and you see injured people just walking on the streets and crying and screaming, it's, uh, you know, you go back to where the injured patients are. You, that's that's what you know to do.
0: Yeah. Now, what was the severity of that first group that you took? Were there, were there any badly wounded or was it more, you know? A-
1: yes, we had two trauma alert patients, which were significantly injured, um, uh, both were backboarded, um, both in the back, um, and uh, usually when we have one trauma or patient, obviously, we have, it'll be the, the rescue paramedic, which would have been me, and then we usually get two other, e- either EMTs or paramedic ride in with us for, to help, um, but there was no one available. So it was just me with, with two patients, two, two critical and, patients. And other ones. Yes. Um, and, um, uh, you know, just severe injuries. And uh, again, I mean, the transport from the, the triage area to the hospital was maybe two minutes yeah. at most. Uh, so having to call the hospital, giving a report really quick on the radio on each patient, at the same time assessing each patient, trying to do an IV, controlling bleeding, its it's a lot of stuff, and there's really not a lot of time to get all this done. So that's definitely something that... You know looking back it's like that i that i picked the the right things to do uh, in the right uh, uh, order you know or that i missed something that could have been done earlier so it's uh definitely not anything anyone any, anyone they're probably dealt with yeah so
0: now what did that so you go back to the scene again what are the next what were the next actions you return to to the scene
1: yeah, so we returned to the scene, um and again, same thing. Th- we open the back doors and we are given again trauma alert patient, um and and other injured, just not as critical. Um there were really no uh as far as i remember like names birthdays well, we would usually get medical history allergies because there was no time yeah, for john that john and
0: jane doe's right yeah. yeah
1: and uh i just remember pulling up to uh to the hospital opening the doors and telling them hey i have two trauma other patients they're both very critical and they're like okay you have to which one is more critical and i said both of them they're like we only have room for more, for one in the trauma room which one so i had to decide within seconds um which, of course, the other patient got seen as well. It just wasn't in the trauma room because they just didn't have the, the capacity at that time for that. And, uh, so I picked. And again, that's another thing. It's like that I pick right, that I pick the more critical patient looking back, you know, at, at the type of injuries they had. I questioned, well, what if this was worse? Um, and then the other patient we actually ended up putting in the hallway bed. Uh, and leaving uh, that patient with with a nurse in the hallway, which is is uh, crazy to think, you know, mm-hmm. I
0: mean. But the bays, I mean, when I was there at least, I think there was only four trauma bays, weren't they? So it's very quick to to overwhelm that particular Oh, yeah, and I, uh, area. now
1: I believe it's uh, six, and then they have two or maybe three other beds in a separate area that they added. But, uh, yeah, it's not, I mean, with as many patients as they had, there's definitely not enough room mm-hmm. in there.
0: So from a, a trained MCI perspective, and good you, Ryan. Um, you know, obviously we do the start triage is what we were taught. Um, which elements of that we were able to adhere to and which elements do you think in hindsight now there was a better way of doing it?
2: Um, from an MCI perspective, um, there was a point where we were, a little away from the scene, and we were met with. I think there was a couple other units. We were met with patients. One had a gunshot wound to the abdomen. One had one to the leg. Um, I remember a patient had neck pain, but everybody's like, "Oh, the neck pain, neck pain." I'm like, I just asked him. I was, and it was just everybody was just fried and scrambled, and and so it was. I was just like, what's the neck pain from? She's like, Oh, I was, my head was pinned between the toilet and the wall, trying to hide in the bathroom. I was like, Okay, not a problem. I was like, Okay, this unit, you take the abdominal pain, this unit, you take the leg, and then so and so takes the neck pain. You know, it was, all right, abdominal has to go first. Then the leg is, is like, not to, to knock on people, but it's basic. You just go back to the basics of triaging what the wounds are. And, I'm glad at that point it was more, I think it was units that got on scene and haven't really adjusted to what was going on yet as to where Marie and I have been already there. And it's sad to say we were becoming more acclimated to it to where we could think a little bit more clear. And so I remember just yelling, stop and then going, all right, you go with them, you go with them, so on and so forth. And then, that was it but as far, uh, there wasn't really i mean that's about as far as the mci kind of stuff i can think of because it was just anybody you saw you snagged them and go you know i remember the police just put them in the back of a pickup truck and hightailing it down the road it was because it was still a hot zone and there was still gunfire and there was still a major threat so it was just anybody you could see grab them and go get them out of here So, um, I remember unified command being set up between all the agencies on scene, but the communication was hard because it was different agencies trying to contact their their agencies, or and then unified command trying to tell just decipher what to do, and uh, everybody. It felt for a minute like everybody wanted to be in charge, and that no one was in charge. Mm -hmm. So I felt like it was just all right. Let's go back whoever ends up in our truck ends up in our truck and we're gone. So, um, yeah, you know, you, you make the best out of a terrible situation.
0: Yeah. Cause I had, um, John Spear on, I think we talked before we started recording, who was at the Aurora shooting, one of the first medics on scene. Um, and, you know, we think about Star Trek as you think about 32 can do. And, and he had a good point. Like this shooter was in a movie theater. He threw tear gas in there, then started shooting. So these people's respirations were, you know, high. They're not following directions because they're absolutely terrified. And he was saying kind of like you were saying, Ryan, basically It basically went back to just medical common sense. Like who appears to be the worst? That's all I can really work on. And with them, they had this giant multiplex where victims are coming out of all these different... Doors. So again, they were getting police officers coming in. They were more um, remote where they had a kind of funnel, and I think they were able to to start steering people the right way. But if you think about Pulse, one block over, Station Five, one block over, um, ORMC, are you really going to set up ambulance staging, MedCon, all this stuff when the host- you can see the lights of the hospital from from the club? So it's, it's you know it's one thing that Monday morning quarterback it from you know, the the MCI standpoint, oh, I didn't follow this, this or this. But what I hear from real world is you just do, you know, that's, that's a good framework, but ultimately it's going to go the way it goes and it's how you adapt that's yeah. important.
1: Well, I mean, um, I, that was the first call that I'm aware of where all of these different agencies worked together and We never worked together. I mean, we had private ambulance companies. We had two different fire departments. I'm not sure if there was a third, um, but two different police departments. Um, So it was, everyone was, we had to figure out how to work together, and there was no time to really think about it. You just had to do it. So yes, of course, it was difficult, and it probably wasn't done as smoothly as you would think looking back at it now, Um, but- you know there was a triage area set up there was a treatment area set up but as far as Ryan and I being on the rescue we're not really aware of all of the behind the scenes that happened um i just know we just kept going to where the patients were and of course there were a lot of of uh, people that were injured that just walked to the hospital because the hospital was right there so there were people carrying patients that probably could have were trauma alerts that were being carried by their friends or just just other people that were in the club with them so so in that aspect it was chaotic because there were victims everywhere you know injured injured people everywhere
0: now so, what about the whole hot zone cold zone Because i know if, if my research is right there was like a steady amount of gunfire from like about 20 minutes and then there was almost like a stalemate until the uh, swat team tried to make entry yeah. so so we tell had me about that.
1: Quite a few hours of like yeah. it was quiet, which yeah. was very
2: it strange. Was, <laughs> yeah, it was. It was eerily quiet, where we just stood around. It was like we were just waiting. As far as hot and cold zones, um, I remember it was at one point it they thought the shooter had a bomb in his vehicle. I guess uh, the bomb dog picked up on his car for some reason, but there ended up not being one. And they moved us back like a thousand feet or a thousand yards, something like that. And it was, if you could hide behind something, hide behind something, you know, stay out of a line of sight. And then it was just hours. We we're just sitting there, but it felt like parts of it felt like forever and parts of it seemed like it went by fast. Um, I remember during that, you know, all right. You know, this is still really bad. I texted my wife like, hey, you know, this is what's going on. You know, just in case I love you, you know, tell my, my son I love him, things like that. But it was just, yeah, like Marie said, it was just quiet for hours. And then it amped back up when they decided to breach. We didn't know about it, you know. Oh, really? They didn't tell us at all that they're about to breach. And all of a sudden we just hear boom after thinking there's a bomb. So and it, I mean it echoed down the streets, it was so loud. And then next you hear is just endless gunfire for maybe ten, fifteen seconds. And then it was that was it.
1: <laughs> and then the second wave yeah. of patience came.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So mm. so if, correct me if I'm wrong, you had the first group and from what I understand there was like a, a veteran who was a security guard that managed to get a bunch of them out through a gate. And then you obviously had the main dance floor that I think SO was, or, or um, sorry, the police, OPD were, were pulling out. But then you had everyone barricaded in the bathrooms. Is that right? Right. And so was-
1: when we first arrived on scene, there was that first group of, of patients that were able to escape on their own, or like you said, someone pulled them out and or assisted them out. Um, so once they were all transported or they made it to the hospital, there were uh, two to three hours of, like just us kind of waiting around for the police to determine how they were going to make entry and and safely do it I guess. Um, so at that time it was just qu- it was you know we we're setting up putting chairs down setting up the triage area because like Ryan said we had to move from the original um, location which was just almost across the street from Pulse. Uh, you could see Pulse from where we're at so obviously with the threat of a possible bomb in his van that was parked in front of the club, we were very close. And again, also even if, if, let's say, he would have walked out of the club and started shooting, we were probably a little too close. So we moved to a different location. So during that time, we were just kind of setting up, talking to the other departments, uh, talking to the police that was there by us. Um, it was just... It was a long time, but honestly, for me, I felt because there was so much going on, it it passed very quickly. And there was really, for me, at least there was no time to really um, realize what was going on. You're still working on adrenaline and you're still like ready to go when when the next group of, of injured people are able to come out. Uh, but luckily for me, on the way to the call, when uh, we first got dispatched and it said there was a, an active shooter in a club and I saw that it was uh, on Orange Avenue. I, for some reason, initially, I assumed it was downtown. And it was uh, um my husband was supposed to go out that night with his friends. So I called him right away. We didn't even know what it was. I, we were still assuming it was maybe like... Either nothing or maybe one person was shot or something. Uh, but I called him just to see if he was out. Um, and luckily he answered the phone. He was home. And I'm so glad for that because when I found out that it was Pulse, I had been to Pulse before and he had been to Pulse with his cousins. So he could have been there. And if I wouldn't have, if he wouldn't have answered his phone and I wouldn't have known that would have been very difficult for me to to focus on my job and also worry about you know my family so at least I knew he was okay so but yeah I mean during the call there was no time for for me to process what was going on really
0: now what about um inventory I mean obviously you having to lean heavily on trauma bandages and you know trauma supplies um you know did you have enough for all those patients that you had I know it was a short transport time but even even so
1: um, yes, I, I didn't run out of equipment or anything like that. We, it was, as far as that, we were good. Um, you know, I, I do remember starting an IV on a trauma alert patient in the hallway at ORMC. We had just placed the patient in the trauma bed, uh, in the hallway bed, and there was I didn't have a chance to start an IV because I did it on the other patient. So I just did the IV there just to have it done for the hospital staff because obviously he was going to need... Fluids or, or blood transfusion at some point. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, no equipment wise, we we were fine. At least we were.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing again about busy house. Like I remember cramming all our yeah, supplies in because you might not see the station again. You know, whereas if that had been one of the quiet houses, minimalizing their their inventory, you know, it could be a different story. All right. Well, then with that breach again, you know, I read. I was actually in Portugal when this all happened, so I was away from you know this as away from um the resort for the alligator attack they had and that whole week you know? yeah it so, was a horrible mm-hmm. month <laughs> singer was shot as well
1: mm-hmm.
0: um but uh the so I, I was obviously reading reading up on it because i wasn't here um there was initial breach attempt with the explosion but then i think they end up driving the bearcat through the wall to actually get the people out so tell me about that you're you know you finally shuttle people back you're you're having that moment where you're you're waiting now so walk me from that explosion through to what that next wave looked like
1: well for me we were um staging at the new staging area or triage or treatment area and uh like he said we heard this big explosion and we all thought it was the bomb that went off and my first thought was like Oh my God, all the police officers that are trying to go inside and, you know, and deal with this and, and, and save more people are now killed pretty much. And we're going to have to also transport and treat police officers. As well as, as the, the injured, you know, victims inside. This is even worse than it already was. Um, and w- there was a van, right, by where we were at. And I remember all of us kind of running behind the van and kind of like hiding behind it, not knowing if there were going to be gunshots coming towards us or, you know, just it, it was the very, we did not know what was going on. So. We were there at least with the police officer. So I remember him hearing on the radio what actually had happened and he eventually let us know. So then we knew it wasn't a bomb that went off or, you know, the, the shooter's bomb. But, uh, that was kind of my experience. And then obviously hearing the gunshots nonstop for, for, you know, however many seconds it was. But, uh, it was scary <laughs> not knowing if someone was going to come running towards us shooting or what, what was going to happen.
0: Nice. Now, did you did you have in the end an abundance of of rescues? Because when I got back, I asked my last department, you know. So tell me about it. Who did you send? And they were like, "Oh no, we we didn't know it was going on." I'm like, "You didn't know what the biggest mass shooting in the U.S. was going on? Like dispatch were all asleep." I mean, like, what, what do you mean? So to me, I was expecting that we at least send someone up there, you know, even if you're just handing out bloody water or bandages, something, you know what I mean? And they didn't, and I was disgusted, and I made that very very public but um did you have enough resources or was it you and and some of the orlando units that were basically shuttling most of the people
1: no i we did have so after the initial when we initially got dispatched and we made it on scene uh within 10 minutes or maybe less after being because our fire station was pretty close to the scene um after that initial uh arrival on scene for us when we went back 15 minutes later there were a lot of rescues there i mean our department had i don't even know how many rescues but i i don't even know how they ran any other calls because it seemed like almost every, every rescue one. was there yeah um and then obviously the the other the fire department and the private ambulance company had units there so we did have a lot of rescues there just not when it first started because obviously right they needed some time for everyone to get there
2: yeah there were there were a lot of our department units on scene i mean as well as some orlando units um i think they both utilize the same tree trio- or staging area um but from what i heard neighboring departments around ours and orlando backfilled for us and ran our calls like in our department and stuff, so...
0: Exactly, that would have been helpful. I mean... I mean, we have one of your stations right around the corner from us.
2: Yeah, I mean... So, I mean... The term brotherhood that goes a lot farther than just a word or an in-house thing, it's, you know, your department's in distress or our city's in distress. We're going to help you out. Mm. So, I remember Seminole County asking to send units and running calls in our area. Um, Yeah, I mean it's just it's a cool thing to know that you have help from other agencies no matter what
1: and usually i mean you know how it is with different fire departments there's always some sort of like competition and like you know like we talk about each other like oh we're better than you but on on something like that what what really stuck with me was how well everyone worked together now again i don't know about like at the command level but us like the 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 firefighters the police officers Everyone worked so well together and, and we were all, it was like we all worked for the same place. And that was amazing to me because we all had the same goal to help and save as many people as possible. And there was no competition or anything like that. Um, and we never had trained together before. So the way we worked, I, I, that's what really stuck with me with the different fire department, just departments in general there.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's an important point too, because we should have, because I remember doing um you know at your agency the only mci training i remember was at the training center and it was like a short school bus and there was you know eight mannequins with tags already on them and people were just casually going in all right we'll take this one first this is deceased and it was piss poor i mean no question it was a fucking awful mci thing now much better than i had in the following department but prior when i was at western anaheim they would you know use the entire convention center do an entire scenario and we had swat we had you know the 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 police officers we had you know hazmat team there we were there and it was just a complete high stress scenario and it was brilliant because i mean they protect you know disneyland and they've got you know all these adventure centers and sporting arenas and musical arenas and so they trained the way it would go down and i think i hope that after that that cause more conversations with county and city departments working together because i I remember being on um pine lock and there was that old trailer park on the corner there Mm -hmm. and there was a transformer fire and there was, it was, I don't know if you remember, there was like dense palm trees there and the trailers were all feeding each other. Now oh, yeah, it's luxury condos. Oh, yeah, it's been leveled <laughs> now. That's reduced uh, the call load a little bit. Um, but I remember calling dispatch saying it was on a rescue. Like, hey, we've got a transformer fire. You're going to have to send us a rig and, you know, utilities because otherwise this place is going to go up. And I was arguing with dispatch because Pine Lock, the dotted line in the middle of the road, separated us and Orlando. They're like, oh, I think that's Orlando's area. I'm like, I don't give a shit whose area it is. Just send me the closest rig so that we can put this out, you know, along with utilities. And we can protect these structures because I'm on a rescue and a saline bag isn't going to do it right now, you know. <laughs> but it's it's just, it was insanity. Like Like you said, the common purpose is there are people in danger find the the nearest person who can help i don't care what you know what um maltese they've got on their chest right Right. so yeah i mean so so did i mean i'm kind of jumping forward now did that kind of push you guys to do a little bit more interagency training after this
1: um we did do interagency uh training um I mean, I, I again, I, I don't know their discussions that they had as far as, you know, the higher-ups and things like that. But I know that there was some training that came after that.
2: Yeah. So yeah. Oddly enough, um, I think it was when they first started implementing active shooter training for our department.
0: It was a safe training? Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. I went the shift before. Really? Yeah. And I remember we had a discussion... You know, talking about things we can improve on just in general because of unfortunate events that's happened in the past with other agencies and other parts of the world. And I mentioned, you know, training with multiple agencies because Orlando is the number one tourist destination in the world. Something's going to happen here at some point, and the whole world's going to be on top of us. You know, every agency under the sun. And it just came down to, you know, it's it's difficult to do, you know, to get all agencies involved, which I understand, you know.
0: But you figure it out. Right. You know what I mean? Hard doesn't mean you don't do it.
2: Right. And so, I mean, I, get, I remember getting irritated at that. I just felt like we weren't training like we should be. Now, I will say that, I mean, good on them for attempting and trying to get something in motion because you know you start at the bottom and you progress with it and figure out the quirks and and fix it, but I mean, unfortunately, it was a little too late, I think. But
0: and safe training wouldn't have really been pertinent for that particular right. scene anyway, would it? Right.
2: I think Even it though was, there
1: was a discussion of oh, Do you remember yeah. um, when one of our chiefs was actually? Uh, discussing possibly sending us in with our uh with bulletproof rests on just to something similar to the safe training with the police officers and but i mean the club like i said i had been at that club before and it's it's a small club and it just wouldn't have worked i don't think it would have been the the type of uh scene that would allow for something like that to happen but even though you know we train on this and we're always like yeah we're ready to go in when it, you're actually in that situation and someone's in front of you actually discussing and you might be going into a, a scene like that with a bulletproof vest on it's pretty scary yeah, you know yeah. i mean we were ready to do it but it's like hmm this is,
2: well, this is, is really. scary yeah, <laughs> please, please don't green, green light this <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, but it's funny because i've had discussion especially with the last place where we were doing safe training so not even in that environment because i mean you're right it's hard to say that's a a warm zone in mm-hmm. a club where there's a guy with a semi-automatic rifle in the bathroom mm-hmm. with a bunch of hostages that's not warm that's red hot still yes so it's you know it's not the right application i don't think for that particular l- low level of training that we had low you know protective equipment that was generic that didn't even fit you you know the helmet probably would have fallen off as you made entry you know what i mean? Um but, uh, you know, how I've had discussions with people saying, well, if that happens, I'm not, I'm not going in. I'm not, and I'm like, I, it, again, we're talking about doing it properly with a warm zone. They've already cleared areas. You're going in just as a precaution. You know, you've got officers at the front, officers at the back. You're doing a rapid extrication. Um, it's dangerous. Fire is dangerous. Extrication is dangerous. You know, collapse. I mean, all these are dangerous. So to say that you wouldn't go to Columbine. And try and pull those people out that were behind that window that bled to death right. because it's quote unquote not your job. I disagree. I and mean, you know, I I applaud you and everyone else on that scene because it was dangerous. Like you said, a bomb could have gone off. He could have come out with with his rifle. And you still stepped up and did it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely like I said, we had no doubt of if we were told you're going, I mean, we would have gone in and we were ready. But it still is scary, and you think about it like, "Am I gonna make it? Is is this the last call we're running?" Um, but same thing with fire. I mean, when you're in the motions of of running this call, and you're going in the building or going into a, you know, unsafe uh, scene, you just for me, at least, I don't think about it. There's no time to think. I'm just doing it, and I know that that's what I have to do. And then later, you have time to process, and you're kind of you like, oh, well.
2: I think it's because we run fire quite more often. And like something like this, this is a threat we haven't faced. We've been dealing with shootings after they've happened, after the suspect is gone or apprehended.
1: We stage until the scene is secure right. for us, and then we go in. So, oh. but here,
2: where it's we're thrown in the lion's den, like it's still happening. You're still hearing gunshots, literally feet away. You're screaming, running, chaos everywhere. You know, go, <laughs> yeah. get in there, and like fire is just different. You just do it. You're trained to do specifically this, you know, and. It, so you get that reassuring feeling like, okay, I know what to look for, you know, I know what to avoid, what possible threats are there. I mean, it can always go south on a fire too, don't get me wrong. But with something like this, anything can happen. Um. So, I, I mean, like Maria said, the whole feeling of... Like, just, I, I don't know. It's like, like to talk about what you said, like you're used to it and, and this is what you're expected to do. But it's a question I had, you know, my whole career. Like, I haven't really felt like I'm in a, am I going to make it or not scenario. Mm-hmm. And if I ever face that, what am I going to do? Am I going to be the guy that just clams up Or am I going to be the guy who does something? And, you know, I didn't know. You know, I didn't know how it would ever be till I was in that scenario. And I'm glad to see that, hey, you know, this is what the route I chose. So, and what my character really is. And to see Maria and the character she is, like, there was not a question ever with her. It was, let's do it. You know, I mean, she, I could see it in her face like she felt uncertain and that there was times of fear, but it didn't overcome her. It was, let's get it done.
0: Well, I think there's a, there's a lot to be said as well about working in the stations that you work in. You know, there's, there's a, a level of stress inoculation. I think there should be that in training. And I think that we should be doing MCI training. I love these organizations. There's one down south. Um, uh, God, I'm blanking on his name now. It'll come to me in a sec, but, um, where they'll do blank firing ammunition during it and then you'll be thinking like you're not just extra extricating a patient you're using the surroundings as you said with the van to protect you from possibly flying bullets you know you're you're tourniqueting you're doing all these things um and we don't train that i've never trained like that so uh, d-day is the the organization um but it's something that we should be doing because sadly is a reality whether it's that kind of shooting whether it's a workplace shooting like we had across from the training center in uh or in uh the uh orange county department um and you know we it's so prevalent now murder suicides all these things you know so firearms are as you said everywhere in america so i think that that's the next wave in what we do is preparing us equipping us properly having our own gear you know i even like the idea of tactical medics being armed personally i don't want to be a medic in a you know in a SWAT team and just have kung fu to rely on (laughs) (laughs) at least that. (laughs) yeah so i mean i think that's the next step too like you're not first through the door but if you look at the marine corpsman model they're still carrying they're not just there you know waiting so if their team is mowed down by some jihadists they're there just sitting dark so you know i think that you know there's there's a lot we could do okay still got beautiful just write that down. That was 127. All right. We mentioned law enforcement obviously lots of times. One thing I want to get from your perspective is we had one of the SWAT members shot in the helmet. And thank God he survived. Um, did that ever get to you via any sort of communication that we had an officer down?
1: Yes, we did hear that on the radio. And uh, we were... Where in the area where we're expecting the second group of, of patients to be brought to us. So we were all, not just Ryan and I, but just everyone that was there, we were all waiting for him to be brought to us as well. Um, but he was actually uh, thrown in the back of a pickup truck by uh, the police officers, and they just sped through past us and took him directly to the hospital. Um but yes, we did hear that on the radio. And okay. It was an extra, an added stress to everything else that we were going through. Yeah. So, All right. and well, especially like I've had a, I had an officer that was unfortunately shot and killed um, in the, at the station that I worked at with Ryan. So I had run that call before. And so obviously this brought back some of those emotions too. So it was, yeah, but I'm, I'm glad that the, that he survived and- he was not... It wasn't as bad, obviously.
0: Yeah. Well, just, I mean, stay on him for a second. So, that's he's someone I talk about, you know, quite a bit, mm-hmm. you know, to keep the memory going. But also, with this whole push at the moment, you know, with demonizing the police and everything. And, you know, if correct me if I'm wrong, but he was found with his taser deployed and shot to death. So, um, he, he'd gone for the less lethal force and it ended up, you know, costing him his life.
1: Yeah. I mean, he was shot multiple times in the head. So... And it was just a traffic stop. I guess uh, I think the person had warrant for his arrest and basically just shot him and took off. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was difficult because he he used to come to our fire station to have lunch. And, you know, he was there a, a few hours, actually less than an hour prior to, to running on him. He was there eating his food and conversated with us. And then you know, less than an hour later, I'm cutting off his clothes and we're doing CPR and yeah, it was very difficult. So yeah,
0: well, what was that like? I mean, we'll get back to pulse in a second, but I mean, losing someone because I'm almost certain that he, I was there sometimes when he was there too because mm-hmm. I remember the face, but that wasn't my assigned station. Um, what was like that? What was that like for you and the crew? You know, to to have such a personal upfront um, loss like that.
1: It was very difficult. And I mean, after the call, you know, seeing certain co-workers crying that you would have never thought this person's capable of crying, you know, because you have these, you know, we all work together and we're all like, uh, we all act like we're tough, and and, you switching. know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nope. And then just seeing those emotions come out of these, these people that are senior and uh, that was very humbling you know to see but for me I was still a very new employee a very new medic uh, obviously it did affect me but I didn't realize how it affected me until a year later which was really weird um, it just hit me a year later and I got very like depressed and sad about it just and then it, it lasted for a few months and I don't know exactly what brought it on a year later but that's that's what happened to me um so I you know, going to his funeral and hearing the last call, that's that's the worst. <laughs> yeah. It's very hard. So
0: Yeah, well I mean, I just gave you the book, the one of the chapters is about that and it's actually mm-hmm. Carl's funeral that I write about. And it's a mm-hmm. kind of mish of, you know, every funeral. But yes. you know, we had that two year period where we lost six people mm-hmm. you know, between Reedy Creek and and, you know, here. And yeah, that last call tears my heart out to the point where i'm right about it but i fucking hate bagpipes now yeah i wasn't a huge fan before i'm not gonna <laughs> <Yeah>. lie Sounds <laughs> it's a cat being strangled but um but yeah i mean it just i wouldn't say triggered but it just all i can associate with that is funerals now same yeah. as class A's. there's nothing mm-hmm. positive about a class a uniform to me
1: yeah i mean i've you know i went to carl's funeral as well and then we also went to we've been you know to multiple funerals but honestly if if I can avoid a funeral I will. And it's not because I don't care, but it just affects me in a way where I just I feel like for me, just being home and thinking about the person, I feel like it's enough uh respect for them and then I and love. Um and yeah, I just I don't know. I just being there, I just kind of if I don't have to go to another funeral, I, I'll be okay. <laughs> Especially wearing your class A's, and, like I said, here in that last call,
2: mm. nah, no, yeah, Carl's got me as well. It's always the last call. I mean, it was you know going seeing him laying there, and then seeing him carried out by his crew and some family, and watching his lieutenant, like Maria said, people you'd never see bald just completely melted to the floor and you know it's just uh, it's gut-wrenching it's it's and then you go and people speak on their behalf talk about good times and then it it's time for that bell and it's time for that final call and then it's just like everything that person ever was hopes and dreams is it's gone you know and all you have is a picture or a memory And it just gets you. And something about a last call and ringing the bell just brings you back to that realization.
1: And it's hard enough when it's someone who's, you know, elderly and has lived a full life. But when it's someone in their 20s, like Carl or, or Brandon, you know, and, you know. Uh, had aspirations very, very difficult because you put yourself in that situation too I mean we all still have so many goals and and hopes to do this and do that and see this and that and, and uh, you know realizing that this person didn't get to live these things and it wasn't obviously by their right, like, it's choice almost
2: like a sense of survivor's guilt a little bit
1: yeah
0: It's fucking awful what it is we're well, going back to, to pulse then just to kind of round it off. Um, so the breaching happened now, obviously you've got more patients to access. Did, did you receive any of those patients?
1: We then, uh, we were most of that time we were part of assisting other, uh, crews, treating patients on scene and then, uh, helping them put the patients on the stretcher and, and inside the rescues. Um, and then, uh, Actually, our last patient, it was, it was someone that was trapped in one of the bathrooms. And it was, I think he said 20 people that were in this very one stall bathroom. Um, so he had just body pains from, uh, from being crammed in there for some, so long. So he was, you know, physically stable. So I think for me, that was that was even a little bit harder than the other calls because there was not a lot for me to do in the back. And we actually ended up going to a hospital that was further away uh, because he was stable. Um, so it was a longer transport. And I'm sitting here in the back with a person that just went through this. What do you say? You know, I mean, I had no idea what to say to him. And he was still in shock. Um, I remember he received a Text or a phone call from a family member, and they asked him, Where's your car? You know, and he's like, My car. I don't care about my car right now. But I could tell he hadn't yet processed and realized really what happened. And, you know, it was just that was difficult, not knowing really what to say or do to make him feel better. I mean, there was nothing I don't think I could have said to make him feel better. But and then getting to the other hospital, so going to ORMC all night. And seeing, you know, so many patients and, you know, everyone's running around trying to help and like so chaotic, really organized chaos. And then getting to the other hospital and it was so quiet and it was almost like no one there really knew what had just happened. You know, it was crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, that was our last patient, which was around 5, I think, or maybe yeah. 6, six five. closer to 6 And then in we the came morning. back
2: to the scene and then we didn't clear till around 6.00. 45.
1: Mm -hmm. And then we got dispatched to a different call.
2: Yeah, which happened to be a potentially violent situation. Unrelated to this. Well, again,
1: I think it was, again, no one really knew what had just happened and wasn't prepared. But maybe we could have taken ourselves out of service, but we just didn't think about it. And and as soon as we cleared, we're on the way back to the station. And uh, yeah, we got dispatched to another call. And yeah, it was just something, I don't know, someone got in a fight, a physical fight. And
2: yeah, you know, and then
1: dealing with that, and you're like, I just came exactly. from. Right,
2: and I <laughs> <That> remember was- <laughs> our, we get on scene and our engine was on scene, but it was the only engine Our engine curve. was also
1: on scene of, of yeah. Pulse with us mm-hmm. too, so.
2: Yeah, but they got to leave earlier, like not much earlier than us, but. And then they were relieved by the oncoming crew who got a little bit of what just happened. And so they respond to the call for a PBS, like a potentially violent situation. And we get on scene and I'm so glad we were wearing our long sleeve T-shirts. We had blood all over us. Like I remember feeling it on my sleeves and stuff like so much that it was just matted to my skin and in my hair. And the lieutenant looks at us and says, nope. You're out of service. Go back to the station. And he calls for another rescue. So, I mean, that was good. And then we got back to the station and I'm like, hey, you know, passing on. I'm sorry about how the truck looks. I'll take care of it. We didn't have to do anything. The oncoming crew's like, no, Mm -hmm. no, we got it. We're like, are you sure? And they're like, no, we got it. And then, like, you don't really think of how this stuff affects you until it affects you. And for me, it was almost instant once I got back to the station. Because my lieutenant and I, you know, I've known my lieutenant forever, my whole career. And he's one of my best friends. And I don't remember what it was, but me and him, you know, just snapped on each other. Started yelling at each other, got in each other's faces. I mean, stuff we would never do. And luckily, you know... We parted ways, went home, you know, I realized what had happened. So I called him, I was like, Hey man, I don't know what that was, you know, and we mended fences then, but it just, you know, so many tolls, things like this take on you that you don't even realize. Like I just things, I acted in a way that I wouldn't act ever to people I would never do that to. And it's just, it's weird.
0: Well, you've got, it's the thing that you've got a career that's already spanned, what, about 10 years then? Yeah. Close to. And then you have this event. And that's what people don't understand. It wasn't that Maria and Ryan saw, you know, we're at Pulse. as Maria and Ryan spent their entire career running their asses off one day out of every three. Um, and then this happens. And then, like you said, immediately after, and luckily then at least, you know, whatever the next shift was, you're back on the horse again it wasn't like you got to you know tap out you know those, so that's i think that's what people do understand is had it happened maybe two weeks into your career maybe you wouldn't have been screaming at each other but you've already got this you know frazzled firefighter medic and then you add an acute event i mean of course it's going to have a you know horrendous effect
1: yes it's true We were given the opportunity to take off, uh, you know, a few shifts. Or I think we were told how many ever we needed. But it was weird. Like, we wanted to, like, I remember both Ryan and I and the engine crew saying, no, we want to be around each other. So we we went back.
2: It was almost like we knew if we were apart and we were home, you know, on our off days, that we're around people who don't understand, you know, because they don't live it. And then also it would just stew and stew and stew and stew so you know like they say you know your best debriefing is at the dinner table you know with people who go through it with some of your closest friends family absolutely family and it's just like our department i think they realized how big of a situation this was and kudos to them for having an a, a i don't remember if it was the same or the day after we got off shift day later, yeah they had a mandatory debriefing for all of us you know to say our piece and you know ask us what we need things like that so kudos to them for stepping up to that plate but which helped at absolutely. first i was
1: upset that it was mandatory right. and that i was just like i remember venting to my husband like I don't want to go to this. Why do I have to wear the uniform? You know, this is, I don't need this. And then once we actually went and we went through it, it it did help just to, you kind of hear everyone's story that was there and what they felt a day later. Um, And realizing that, you know, you're not the only one feeling like this. It it did help. Yeah. So.
2: Yeah. And like, even still, like when we came back to work, um, like our department realized, you know, Maria and I, Always on the rescue, always, you know, 24 hours going, 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 getting bad calls here and there, good calls here and there. Um, it's just the nature of the beast. But they're like, you know what, L- let's give them a break. And they put us on the engine, I think, four shifts, four shifts in a row, something like that. that sure. I mean, but they, you know, they took care of us because most of the time the engine's not as busy, or at least they get the opportunity to try and go back and sleep. Mm-hmm while the rescue's out transporting, but they they tried to do their best to look out for us. So that's, I mean, good on them for that. I mean, I mean there's really only so much you can do. It's got to be up to the person themselves to take it, you know? Like, you can only offer stress management teams or, or counseling here or debriefings there. It's got to be up to the person who's been through it to be like, you know what, I do need help you know to recognize their own red flags and i don't think a lot of people do I, I think there's a lot of that you know i'll be okay you know just don't talk about it or forget about it but it rears its ugly head when you're you know in the middle of a nasty divorce because of something that could have been prevented yeah. where your spouse or your significant other is the target to things they didn't even cause so, I mean,
1: and I mean, I definitely uh you know, looking back, that's one of the reasons why I did leave the station not after um Paul's happened, but I think about a year and a half later, or something like that, maybe two. um it was just i don't I think it was just everything plus the lack of sleep, you know, literally being awake for twenty four hours every third day, and then picking up over time, I would come home. And at that time, uh, we were engaged, not married, but I would come home and I would wake up my, my husband yelling at him because I'd see, I don't know, a dish in the sink or something, you know, and it was just because I was sleep deprived and I was stressed and probably a lot of things that were affecting me from, from previous calls that I hadn't really dealt with. And, you know, I said, Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. And, uh, so I realized when it was, it started really affecting my, my relationship and we weren't even married yet. That's when I made the decision to leave the station and go to somewhere that was a little bit slower, even though it was like the hardest thing. I mean, I cried, uh, my last shift that morning when I walked out of the station because it, that crew is, is still my family and we went through so much together. And Ryan and I, I mean, it was hard leaving him. We're always on the rescue together and, you know, I felt so guilty, but. You should. I had to, <laughs> <laughs> I still do, but, but you know, I had to do it for, for my mental health and I do feel better now sleeping a little bit more at night.
0: Only a tiny feeling. bit more, are you on the rescue there too? I am, That's and it's not, I mean, still.
1: it's not a lot slower, but a, it, it is a little bit slower. It's mm. not
0: the engine's literally every
1: oh. hour at getting a call.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's there's a much greater dis- discrepancy between the engine and rescue calls in, in that station than there is 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, then, just kind of expanding on that then, um, you know, were there any ripple effects from that night? Were there any, you know, uh, bad places that you went? Or conversely, did you find yourself more resilient after? I mean, what were the kind of takeaways of the following few years?
1: Um, so for me, um, like I said, during, during the call, I wasn't really mentally processing like the stress of it or anything. I just was doing what needed to be done. Um, and then when I got home, usually when I get home after a busy shift like that, where you're not sleeping all night, I'll take a shower and I'll pass out for, you know, six hours or four hours or whatever. And I just took my shower, laid in bed and I was just laying there and I. Couldn't really figure out why I couldn't fall asleep, so I ended up going to breakfast with my husband, and we were sitting there waiting for our food, and I just started crying. And I don't do that; I don't cry in front of people, uh, especially in public. Like that's just not something that I do. But I just started crying right there, and it was weird for me. But I, I mean, obviously I knew why because it it just, (laughs) it just hit me like this is what happened. This is what we went through. This is what all these people that were in the club went through. And so many people died from it. And, uh, and then realizing it happened to us here in Orlando, in our neighborhood. And it was, uh, yeah. And then, you know, after we had breakfast, he had to go to work. So again, I couldn't fall asleep. I ended up meeting a friend and we went to uh, donate blood for the, the, the injured people. They had, um, a lot of people were in line. So basically we were there for two hours waiting to donate blood. And then they said they didn't need us because so many people had gone sure. to volunteer. That was a,
0: that was a solidarity mm-hmm. in the city of Orlando after it happened.
1: Yes. That, you know, moving to Orlando from Miami, when I first came here, I wasn't too crazy about Orlando. I felt like there wasn't a lot, enough diversity compared to Miami. And really after, after Paul said, and seeing how the whole community came together, um, to help and to just, you know, support everyone, uh, that really, really surprised me and, and made me really love the city and realized that it wasn't what I thought it was. Um, yeah, I'm, I would say that that's one of the good things that came of it was how everyone united, so.
2: Um, for me, uh, I think I did a complete 180, actually. I used to love to go run, love to work out. And I, I was upbeat at work, you know. Uh, you know I'm a fireman. I got to go save the day, you know. And, you know, I think it really started um, that morning coming home. I think it really set in when that 180 happened because every shift when my son was little, you know, I'd come home, hey, did you save people today? And, oh, yeah, buddy, I did, you know. And, you know, coming home from that, hey, did you save people today? And I was just like, "Uh, I can't answer that, you know. And it would just hit me hard, and I just, you know, I started crying right there. And at that point, it was just like, I'm not me anymore. I stopped liking to work out. I, I started gaining weight. Um, at work, I just became emotionally detached and I started getting frustrated at everything and everyone. Um, and it, this happened for a while, um, to the point where it was affecting my relationship, you know, my involvement with my kid, um, And I, it was just like, I said, I got to do something. Something's got to change. So I went and talked to a counselor, ended up getting diagnosed with PTSD, uh, taking medicine for it, you know? And then it's just like, there's parts of my family that aren't in the fire service. So trying to explain to them, like, obviously not in great detail, but it's just like, Oh, I wish you can get off medicine one day. It's like, no, that's not something that just goes away. You know, it's not something that, you you just take some aspirin and your headache will go away. No, this sits on your shoulders every day for the rest of forever, and the medicine is to control the sudden chemical imbalance you have to deal with. So, there's that. But luckily, um, you know, I was able to turn it all around, find joy in what I do again, find that I'm actually making a difference, you know, start chasing my aspirations for this job again. So there's good in that. Um but it has caused bumps along the way. And I'm just glad I was able to recognize it. And there was times even Maria's pulled me aside to say, hey, you need something going on, you alright? You know? Well, you need to at least, you know, step it up here. So
1: and it was definitely hard driving by there every third day. Yeah, yeah, every like time we every went every to transfer. the hospital. And, you know, this happened right after the, the shooting occurred, you know, three days later. Well, we were on the engine that next shift, but within that, that week, we were back on the rescue driving past there. So that was really hard. Now I still drive by there every day I'm at work, but it's, it's a little different. I mean, I feel like I've, I've uh, gone through those steps of, of healing from it. So it's different. It's still, every time I pass by there, I still think about it, obviously, but it doesn't have the same effect it did that first year. And so, especially for him, I definitely noticed uh, a change in his personality right after he, he, I, he expressed the stress differently than me. And with me, I think it's more internal, I guess. And uh, with him, I actually saw it and felt it.
0: And what did you see? I'm interested from through your eyeballs.
1: Just like he was saying, he was a little more angry. uh, You could see physically that he was stressed out. And of course, we talked about it. So he would tell me how he felt. um, And then eventually told me he went and spoke to someone, which I was glad for. But we've had, even with our lieutenant, we've had discussions with uh, with Ryan about how he was feeling and if he needed anything, but yeah, yeah. And then you know, I I think you did tell me about your you know going home and having arguments at home, which I was having too. Yeah. It's, and again, you don't know. Well, now I know why, but at that time, you're just angry and just take it out on people that <laughs>
2: it's always they're the around
1: stu- you all the time you love the
2: most stupid stuff too. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: And then with me, you know, my husband doesn't work in the field. So um, I felt like he didn't understand me and he didn't ask enough questions or I felt like he didn't care enough because he wasn't asking the right questions that I wanted him to ask, but he tried his best. He just doesn't do what we do. So it's hard for someone to truly understand. Yeah. Well, but- when
0: you think about it, I've, I think I've told one person about this before, um, name a profession. That does understand like there 's hardly anyone on planet Earth that really see and it's not putting ourselves on a pedestal quite the opposite, but who who understands lying in a bed and then three minutes later you know standing over a gunshot wound victim or standing on a roof with a saw in your hand or making an entry you know i mean it's 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 such a unique thing, and it's not like I said some sort of hero status but it's so alien to so many people and that's why i started this project because yeah. i admire the people in this profession the associated professions so much and people do need to understand so i wrote the book because hopefully the average person will read it and go oh shit I didn't realize this is what they went. Oh, maybe that's why there's, you know, relationship issues in the fire service. It's not because they're all on calendars and walking around with their abs out, shagging (laughs) everything that moves. Maybe it's because we're working them into the ground and they're so sleep deprived that their relationships are falling apart and their families have a deal with them being gone for basically half of their lives. You know, these are real issues. But yeah, I mean it's it is hard to to communicate with your loved one. In a way that you're not shocking the hell out of them, but you're trying to f- meet them halfway where they can understand and still be supportive for you. And that's what I found with my second wife, you know, my Becky now, um, you know, she's incredible and she's an optician. She's not even remotely related to this field, but, um, she gets it, you know, and it, but it's hard. It really is. And, you know, that's why the, the families are, you know, you have to admire them so much as well because they're part of that sacrifice that we make for our communities.
1: Yes. And I think that's why we also, our, our coworkers are our family as well because we, I mean, we live together and we go through these calls together and and sometimes it's not even talking about it. It's, it's just hang, hanging out together and just having a cup of coffee and it just, you know that that person understands even if you're not really talking about it. Um, so... Definitely. I mean, Ryan spoke at my wedding. You know, that's that's how close we are. We might not see each other as you know as often as we want to, or because we don't have time. But we are very close, and yeah. it's because of what we do together at work. So it's
0: no, it's, it's it's you know when we are family, and you said about the brotherhood and the sisterhood. I think that's what infuriates me sometimes, as I. Like, I see people get so fired up about leather helmets and moustaches and pistol grips. Um, Oh, it's, you know, it's tradition. No, that's not tradition. We have an evolution of technology. We should be past some of that stuff. You know, and people hate hearing it, but like the fire helmet, there are much better helmets out there. The one we had is beautiful. It looked great in your office. Let's move on. The Navy SEALs don't wear tin hats. There's a reason (laughs) for that. Um, However, to me... The, the sacrifice that we make and then the brother and sisterhood is the tradition of the fire service. And sadly, I think that that's lacking in, in some areas. But you, if you want to find, you know, that the most, go to the busiest houses. And that's what I found. Battalion four, that was a tight knit group of people on all the shifts. You know, we were all different, A, B, and C, but you know, it really was. Um, but you, you kind of made me think about one point that I've noticed a lot. Is what I witnessed in the busy houses that you get a lot of anger, you know, not just you, but all of us. And and you see, you know, what what people call compassion fatigue sometimes, where these burnt out fire medics, you know, EMTs are are just getting bombarded. And I used to think, you know, like so off, so many of us that oh, when it's the guy pissed off, and you either push their buttons even more, or you just think, oh, that's angry Steve, or you know, pissed off Barbara, or whatever. But now I kind of reframe it because now the journey I've been through, that angry person is someone, it's a, you said red flags, it's a yeah. fucking huge red flag. Someone that you know is happy-go-lucky is always, you know, really short now, then those are the people we need to take round the back of the, you know, the bay and be like, hey, you know, what's going on? Because, you know, I, I've loved this. People have said this to me a few times. You can't think about saying what's wrong with you. You got to ask yourself what's happened to this person, and that's how we have to frame it.
2: I think another thing that is bothersome about the events of the Pulse nightclub shooting, as opposed to other things, is like we get a bad call. We can always go back to the hospital and and hear the outcome, you know, because they're not super swamped. They don't. They know who the person is. You, you know, but with this, like, we're, we're throwing everything we can at these people. We're doing everything we can, you know. This is the moment to, to shine, per se, with what we know and we're taught. And it's us versus death, basically, or critically injured or whatever. And... We see these faces and we take them to the hospital. We know their injuries and then that's it. We don't know what happened to them. We don't know if we made a difference. We don't know if they still walk this earth. Um, it, it, it sucks because you, you can still remember some of the faces. You still remember the whole night. And I mean, you don't even know their names. You don't know how they're doing, if they still exist. I mean, that would have been like I heard of other units and other departments meeting people and, you know, meeting some of the survivors. But us, you know, we never got that opportunity. So it's just, it's just a constant wonder for the rest of forever now. And it sucks. Mm-hmm. You know, A lot of people just, oh, that's your job. You know, they dehumanize it. But in reality, this is one of the most human jobs there can be.
0: Well, you don't get closure as well. I had the, um, right. Dr. Peter and, and <coughs> excuse me, Dr. Peter Antevi on the show, and he talked about that. I mean, even the regular ones. How how many times do you get to follow up? Even a regular, you have to go through this whole rigmarole. And if there was, a, let's say, you had it on shift change, now it was two, three days ago. You basically you are screwed. You're not going to find out what happened to that patient. But how, like you said, how do we have closure as a medic, as an EMT, if we don't know what happened to that patient? If we didn't have time to kind of you know find a conclusion to that call, but giving them to an er where you've just tubed them and you know thrown a tourniquet on them how that's not closure you're you're going to be wondering what happens so yeah i think that's a incredibly valid point is you know we need to do that and i think you know ems captains and those kind of ranks that's something that they you know i think should do probably some people always do maybe already do it well but i think that in my career it would have been nice to have an easy go-to for someone that will follow up because if i take a a dying baby to a you know uh, an er i want to know what happened and i want to know if they pass away w- is there anything i could have done better that was a huge thing for me as a medic they died i get it what would you have done if they died drop dead right in front of you like i used to have always nasty gi bleeds like, how do i get to an airway when emesis is coming out and the suction unit just won't it just gets overwhelmed by their contents you know so yeah i mean that closure is hugely important yeah
1: and unfortunately we don't really get that and it's it's part of the culture i think too because i notice you know i'm I'm also a preceptor so i precept new employees and they come in and because of this whole uh, personality of like the typical firefighter which is this alpha male you know like everything's nothing's a big deal you know you can't you shouldn't and again it's not the department that's teaching this it's just like i don't know where they get it from movies or whatever you know the facade um, of masculinity and, and you see them they'll have their first you know critical call or their first patient that dies and they try to act like it's not a big deal and they kind of um you know they're like oh yeah i'm fine i'm fine i don't need to talk And they don't realize over time doing this over and over again, it is going to hit you because I was like that too at first. No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then you realize later as you mature and looking back and you go through more experiences, you're not fine. And it, it is going to affect you. And from what I hear, it really affects people when they retire and they have the time to just be at home and really think about everything they've done. And that's when it really gets you. And I, I don't want to be in that position. I want to enjoy my retirement. I don't want to, you know, have PTSD because I haven't been honest with myself about my emotions during my career. Yeah. So I, hopefully, that changes. But it's, uh, I think it has to come from more, the more senior firefighters in the department. Uh, like you were saying, things need to change as a culture and maybe have more programs or something like that to help
2: yeah i think to piggyback off her i think people do it to safeguard themselves but they're really doing themselves a disservice instead of facing a little problem head on you're just putting it putting it aside and piling it up and it's just It's going to hit you, whether you think it will or not, you think you're the toughest person or not. It's going to hit you, and it's going to hit you hard. And it could be something that hits more than just you. It could hit your wife, your children, you know, all your loved ones, your coworkers, because you've piled up this massive problem that it affects so many people other than just you, instead of, man, I don't, like... Like, man, I should. I don't really feel good about this call. Let's talk about it. What could I have done? And then that'd be that. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember running a call with Maria just after my first son was born. And I came back from paternity leave. And it was a stillbirth. Mm-hmm. And it, it was just like this little lifeless thing. And it just it was just like felt like jelly. And, you know, that got to me. Like, I just had a son. You know, luckily he was born healthy, all ten toes and fingers. and But this person just had a child and it's dead. Uh, you know, what do you do? <laughs> what do you say? And you you just, if you don't manage that stuff, it's going to creep up on you. And I think a lot of the older generations and the and the younger generations like they feed off each other. The older is just used to, you know, tough it out, tough it out, and then the younger generation's like, oh, well, they're tough. I got to be tough, and it's just a revolving door. It is, it's just so circle. Cool. And uh, like a lot of people, like they masquerade it, like oh, you're being a wuss if you talk about it. Like there's nothing wrong with. You know breaking something down and dissecting what the problem is what the root is you know there's nothing wrong with being a human and the most human job we have you know our job is to be there when somebody calls for us at their worst moment they don't have the training and knowledge we do like we could say they'd be like oh this isn't bad but to them that's the end of the world mm-hmm. and we've become so robotic and away from being compassionate because we run on certain people numerous times or because of the area we work in, you know, the poverty level, just the way people treat us, like we, like you said, we swore an oath, you know, to give up ourselves, our time, you know, and let things affect us so that we can better serve you. And I think people have gone away and forgotten about that.
1: And it's not about the money, obviously. But yeah, <laughs> it's it's, not, it's, not there's a lot. There are a lot of other things I could do and make more money, and you know I'm qualified to do them, but I choose not to. So, and, it's yeah.
2: just it comes back to being a good person.
0: Yeah. One the thing is with with what you're talking about, and I want to kind of piggyback on what you said. There's this facade. And I think it does come partly from Hollywood and, you know, whether you were a Romanian child watching them, you know, Van Dam doing splits <laughs> between two chairs or whatever it is, you know, our heroes, many of whom never really did anything. There, there were some amazing actors that served in World War II and all these things, but a lot of the ones that, you know, the Rambos and the Rockies and, you know, that they, they didn't, they didn't do anything. You know, I actually just, um, interviewed an actor who, uh, produced, helped produce, um, the last full measure. It's about a PJ that uh, in vietnam that was killed he basically went down to rescue one of the crew that was injured sent the stokes basket up without him stayed there picked up a rifle and defended that that group and he ended up dying in the process but he was the um travis was saying all the actors none of them had served it was samuel L. jackson ed harris all these big names and so there was a kind of feeling like they were finally getting to do something good now and then served by doing this movie because a lot of them got paid a lot less than they would have in a, you know, Hollywood blockbuster. Um, But we have our idols are, you know, false gods. They really are. And so what we've held as masculinity, like John Wayne, who actually, when you look at who he was, was not actually even a very nice person, not very open minded. Let's put it that way. Um, You know, it's not masculinity and i always talk to talk about the band of brothers show and i'd say this over and over again because it's just a perfect analogy you've got the the actual show part and at the beginning of the end the real men of of that easy company are talking and they're in their 70s 80s yeah. in tears recalling what happened that's masculinity some of the bravest men that ever walked this earth are also able to talk about it and cry and you know, hug each other, and so I couldn't agree more. The facade we have of what a man is or what a woman is is bullshit, and we need to smash that stigma and understand that we signed up because we want to help people. That's compassion. That's the soft part of the you know yin yang, and then you have the hard part, which is right. It's go time. Like you said, you're standing in front of the Paul as an armed man in the bathroom, and you say, "Fuck it, I'm going to go pull people out." That's the hard part. But those two go together. You're not John Rambo and you're not, you know, some weeping hippie either. You're a mixture of the two. <laughs> you know, we have the soft part and we have the hard part. So, yeah, otherwise it's death by a thousand cuts. And there's a great um proverb, Mexican proverb that says, they they tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. Perfect. You just keep shoving it down. Eventually something's going to grow. You're not going to be able to control it anymore. So I, I concur 100%. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to transition to some closing questions. We are two hours in. An amazing conversation. Um, but I'd love to get your takes on these. So the first one I always ask: Is there a book that you love to recommend to people? It can be com- related to what we've discussed today, or completely unrelated?
1: Well, I have one. My favorite book, and it's probably it's not any ha- doesn't have anything to do with the fire department or anything like that, but Ham on Rye by Charles Bukowski
0: brilliant i've never had that one recommended before <laughs> so no but i love it i mean like i said it the the stuff outside the fire department is probably even more valuable than the stuff in so
1: yeah i mean it's it's a great he's a great author and uh he's an american author and his uh just the way he writes is very like raw and like direct and you know there are a lot of it's not proper at all let's put it that way but um that book just really stuck with me because he it's it's uh, semi auto autobiographical novel but he uh I could relate to to the character in the in the novel and um yeah i mean i I love it <laughs> so and it it brings back memories as a kid you know there's a scene or a a paragraph in the book uh at the beginning where he's a child and he's under the table he could see his family's the grandparents and father's uh feet and he's just you know no one's paying attention to him because he's uh his opinion doesn't matter he's just a child like you're just there to listen and not not speak so that's definitely something that i went through with especially with my father so that kind of stuck with me and yeah it's a great it's a great book so i highly Beautiful. recommend it
2: <laughs>
0: No no that's excellent i love hearing the reason behind it <laughs> All right Ryan
2: uh, no probably not i'm more of a Stephen King fictional story kind I of I figured guy.
0: you were probably going to say that knowing, <laughs> knowing your uh, love of Halloween. <laughs> any, any King novels that you love the most? Uh, it. It. It's great. What do you think of the films?
2: I liked them. <laughs> um, they're not as detailed as the book, obviously, and that's probably for the better for some parts because there were some pretty uh, radical parts in that book, I'd say, but... I liked it. I, um, you know, I like the uh, made-for-TV miniseries that Tim Curry did as well. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, just a story with other people's per- just idea of how it should go and portrayal of the character itself. So I enjoy it.
0: Brilliant. All right, well, staying with you then. What about movies, favorite movies?
2: Ooh. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to say the Dark Knight trilogy.
0: And then stand with you one more. Any documentaries?
2: Uh documentaries, let's see. Um,
1: do you watch documentaries?
2: I do watch documentaries. <laughs> yes, Maria, I'm cultured. <laughs> um, uh, which one? Um my wife and I we usually like to watch some serial color documentaries. <laughs> That's really weird. Yeah. Um
0: I think most people uh, who watch those over this uh covid period i
2: actually just watched this one called the fire asylum it was uh i watched it with a floating lieutenant that came in and it's basically a 24-hour writ drill that i mean they it's this company or these retired firefighters i think they're retired um that got hold of a an old insane asylum in texas and they just set it up for writ scenarios and Basically, it's to work on you as a firefighter, but it doesn't just focus on, you know, physically being fit for the job, even though it touches on that, you know, it just, the firefighter as a whole, it goes from mental, like what you're doing here with mental um, capabilities and what things to look out for, you know, know your limits, you know, just being ready for the job, what to encounter. So that was pretty cool so i enjoyed that, and then it looked like fun, so I was thinking about maybe going and trying it out.
0: Brilliant. I haven't heard of that one, but yeah it's' the kind of um uh fear mit- mitigation type drills as well right. yeah resilience beautiful all right well Maria film and or documentary
1: um, Hmm. I have a lot of films that I like, and they're all very different, but I think one of my favorites is uh, a Clockwork Orange by Stanley Kubrick.
0: Brilliant. What about uh, documentaries? Do you um, watch documentaries? I love documentaries.
1: <laughs> I would prefer to watch documentaries all day over movies or, or series. Uh, so I think uh, I'm kind of annoying with those. Um, my husband's like, oh, another documentary, and he just goes upstairs and leaves me alone. But I love documentaries on nutrition and health. So I'm really big and trying to eat healthy and trying to prevent getting sick by the foods that I eat. So I watch a lot of like Forks Over Knives and Food Matters, just a lot of documentaries about that, about GMOs uh, and history. I like history as well. But my favorites, I would say food documentaries. When I feel like I get off my, my healthy eating habits all pop a documentary and then I get motivated again (laughs) I (laughs) remember why yeah (laughs) people
0: are like oh they're biased well yeah everything's coming from an angle but you can glean so much from it as long as it's not one of those hateful ones you know the political ones yeah (laughs) but yeah I mean I had um James Wilkes from the, the Game Changers, you know, it was a plant-based Yes,
1: movie. I I did not watch that. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah that, I mean, that was a good one. But again, does it mean I'm going to go vegan? No, but yeah. there's, there's some great information in there. Right. Um, all right, so then, staying with you, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: Um, honestly, I really like the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. I feel like even though he does not work in this field uh I love listening to him speak and I feel like he has just a uh a, a different way of looking at things I mean he obviously studies the the universe and and he has this I don't know I just feel like I can relate to him and just listening to all the advice that he gives to people it's uh it's it's not just the typical Answers that you would get from from most people out there. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. No, because I mean that's that's why I reach out to so many people. I just the episode I just released is Josh Clementi, who's a uh, he worked for SpaceX. He worked on the Hyperloop project, and now he's um, got a company called Limits, which is a continuous glucose monitoring and how you you know use that to to change your diets and exercise habits and work out when your peaks and valleys are. Um, but yeah, I love. I love people think outside the box because I think one of the problems in the fire service is we look within the fire service for all our solutions, and a lot of ours, as you said earlier, are indoctrinated in the same thing. So the mental health, for example, well, you know, we're way behind where we should be because it's that rub some dirt in it mentality, which clearly doesn't work. You know, we we follow these athletes that everyone adores who have good sleep good nutrition good fitness habits and then in the fire service we ignore all those lessons and we go back to you know some pretty shitty ones so beautiful all right and then a guest from you ryan
2: hmm that's hard uh i don't know who um
0: i'd love to get stephen king on
2: that would be great (laughs) (laughs) uh I would say, oh god, I can't think of his name. Um, Steve Buscemi.
0: Yes, I'm working on it. Yeah, I have been or, working uh, on it for a long time. Or Dennis Leary. Yeah, I, uh, there's a there's an organization in New York that I've had one of their founders on a couple of times, and I'm hoping that I can get both of those eventually.
2: Yeah, like Dennis Leary, another person. You know, you talk about people that portray this fireman's fireman on Rescue Me, but who's never been a fireman, but you know, if you think about it, a lot of people don't think about it. They're telling the story of us, Mm -hmm. you know, people look at him as the fireman's fireman, but in really he's pretending to be us. So if that's what that looks like and that needs, and it's not what you want it to look like, then maybe we should change how we are.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you watch Backdraft 2? <laughs> oh
2: my goodness. Um Speaking, I couldn't oh. finish watching it, but I've seen <laughs> some of it. That was time in my life I'll never get back. And
0: I've said that as as very, very few I mean, I think there's probably three films I could and I forget what the other ones are, but I literally felt robbed. Yeah, we'll never get that time robbed. back. I don't but know even, how you take a good movie and just destroy it like that.
2: And
1: I know a lot of people are gonna be mad at me for saying this but honestly even the first one like the, the don't, actual don't, fire scene do <laughs> where they're do it, inside a burning building there's fire and smoke and they they're just breathing everything in and they're okay you know it's just that not was the era then though. We'll, give, we'll give hollywood but, a <laughs> buy. that
0: was pre dale die where the military were actually being trained by you know military advisors and mm-hmm. you know we were a little behind but um yeah I mean, oh God, it was so bad. <laughs> you talk about being portrayed, that's us. No, that mm. dude is not even close no. to us. Oh no. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. All right, well then, um, the very last thing, we already talked about your decompression tactics. Um, what is the best place to find you if people want to reach out to you? So I'll start with you, Maria.
1: Probably Facebook. Uh, Facebook Messenger. Yeah, I don't really uh, communicate through Instagram. I have Instagram, but I don't.
0: Okay. And it's Morella Dia on yes. Facebook? Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right, Ryan.
2: Probably the same. I mean, you can always call or text, but, you know, it seems that Facebook rules the world currently. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a good place to,
0: to create a buffer rather yeah. than putting phone numbers out there and getting yeah. crazy people calling you too. Yeah, so. exactly.
1: <laughs> and I, I usually don't answer any phone numbers I don't recognize, so... Whether hope, whether it's an important phone call or not, I just don't answer. It's them,
2: weird. So. I usually don't recognize when I see your phone number. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: because it's blocked.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I just want to say thank you. I mean, two well over two hours now of conversations. Again, I, as I say, that everyone that comes on here and has the courage to tell their story, obviously, I understand completely. There's an element of ripping a scab off a wound, you know. So I know this is hard, you know, for you guys to relive. But uh, I think with this particular event seeing it from being in in the city and having my friends in responding departments it, there was a lot of suppression of information there was a lot of gag orders and that and I feel like now it's time that we tell the story from the human element and also lessons learned you've given us some great insights into the kind of operational side and the safety side but also the the human impact of uh, not just that, just that um that call specifically but you know working on a busy rig in a busy city so thank you both for being so generous with your time today
1: thank you so much thank you this actually helped i feel i feel good (laughs) just talking about it
0: beautiful well that's what's crazy about this is just it's um this is the dining room table there's only three of us today Mm. but this is all we need you know i think i had dana ali on um who's one of the big figures in pushing peer support but remember when we did the interview she said i hope one day." peer support is you know an unknown thing again and we're just talking on the kitchen table again yes thank you we do
1: need that (laughs) thank you